Restaurant Unstoppable, episode 1042 with Jim Salikis. But you got to take a leap. That's like the biggest thing is like some people talk about it, talk about it and talk about it. And that's okay. But like if you really want to see if it works, take the leap and figure it out. Are you ready for it factors, success stories, failures, and bombs of restaurant industry knowledge? Then join Eric Cacciatore and today's incredible guest as they share what it takes to become unstoppable. This episode brought to you by Owner.com. Owner.com is the leading all-in-one platform for restaurant marketing. Owner.com powers everything from SEO-optimized websites, direct online ordering, automated email and text marketing, built-in loyalty programs, zero commission delivery, and branded mobile apps for your restaurant that's integrated right into your POS. With Owner.com, there's no contract, no hidden fees, and nothing to lose. Join thousands of restaurant owners using Owner.com to grow direct online sales, save thousands in third-party fees, and simplify their online ordering presence all in one. Book a free demo today at owner.com slash unstoppable and see why owner.com is the number one rated restaurant marketing software. This episode is brought to you by Restaurant Systems Pro and they are launching their first time ever 60-day pilot program. This is something that's never been done before. This 60-day event is at no cost to you, but it's not for everyone. Fred Langley, CEO of Restaurant Systems Pro, will be leading a group of restaurateurs through the Restaurant System Pro software and setting up the systems for your restaurants. Fred will teach you recipe costing cards, guidance in your books for accounting, cash control, sales forecasting, checklist, budgeting for the entire year, scheduling for profit, it, more butts and seats, and that's not it. If you are interested in this, head over to www.restaurantunstoppable.com slash RSP. That's RSP for Restaurant Systems Pro. www.restaurantunstoppable.com slash RSP. This episode is brought to you by Margin Edge. Margin Edge is a restaurant management software that helps you see your food and your labor costs in real time so you can make informed decisions in the moment. Just snap a picture of your invoice and Margin Edge will process them within 24 to 48 hours with line item detail, including handwritten adjustments. This allows you to save hours on paperwork so you can spend more time creating great guest experience. Head to marginedge.com slash unstoppable to sign up for a free demo today. That's marginedge.com slash unstoppable. This episode made possible by Restaurant Technologies, Inc. RTI's Total Oil Management automates your entire cooking oil process. With Total Oil Management, you get dependable fresh bulk cooking oil delivery, filtration plus oil usage monitoring and reporting, easy oil disposal, use cooking oil pickup and recycling, and say goodbye to messy, dangerous restaurant rendering tanks. Yuck. RTI's end-to-end cooking oil system helps you manage your used cooking oil disposal, storage, collection, and recycling conveniently, safely, and cleanly with no upfront cost. Restaurant Technologies, Inc. is always on, so you don't have to be. To learn more, head to rti-inc.com and let them know Restaurant Unstoppable Podcast sent you their way. With excitement, allow me to introduce to you today's guest, co-founder of Cousins Maine Lobster, 
Jim Salikas. Jim, my man, are you feeling unstoppable today? I'm feeling unstoppable I mean, every day. You better be feeling unstoppable because yeah. this recorded eight minutes and realized we weren't <laughs> recording appropriately. So we're, we're starting over. Yeah. Yeah. We kind of <laughs> got stopped. I, I can say that we're in for a treat because the first eight minutes of the last recording was awesome. <laughs> so you guys at home are in for a treat. So I came by way of Jim. Um, your, your folks reached out to me. I, I knew within minutes, like mm-hmm. probably less than a full minute. Like I was like, Oh, this is going to be good. Um, the story is really interesting. You guys had, you scaled really fast. Um, there's a ton of great, just entrepreneur. You wrote a book about it. Like you, you spent time. Wasn't a number one seller, but we wrote a book. (laughs) But the point is like, if you spent time thinking about how you got to where you are today, so I know we're in a tree and I cannot wait to restart this thing over. Hmm. Uh, But let's get motivational, (laughs) inspirational ball rolling with a success quarter mantra. What do you got for us? Yeah. So mine's simple. It's if you're prepared, you have nothing to worry about. Ooh, that's a good one. So if you're prepared, you have nothing to worry about. Dive into yeah. why that resonates with you. Yeah, so this was from my high school hockey coach, and I just at the time it applied to sports and hockey, right? Whether it's something that you wanted to get better as an individual player or with the team getting ready for you know a big weekend game or to have the most success of trying to win you know the ultimate goal of a championship. But it just reminded me every day that if you're prepared and you're doing the things along the way to prepare yourself, uh, you have will at least give yourself the opportunity for success. You'll give yourself that potential. Um, and as my life has gone on since I was 16 and he told me that, it really works for anything. It works for schoolwork. It works for your job. It works for if you're starting your own entrepreneurial journey. Like if you're prepared, you have nothing to worry about. We use it with Shark Tank. You know, it was really imperative to make sure you're most prepared. And I just think it's so simple and most people don't do it. They don't even give themselves a shot. So you may not win. You may not, you know, be the ultimate success story. But if you're prepared, you're at least going to have a shot. And I agree 100% with that sentiment. And But looking from the outside in, getting ready to get going with your restaurant, I would have assumed, knowing what I know, that you wouldn't have been prepared for opening a restaurant because you guys, you and your cousin had nothing to do with the restaurant industry before Two Cousins yeah. Officer. That's safe to say? Yeah. So w- give myself, I already know because I asked this question three minutes ago, give myself <laughs> and our listeners this idea of what was going on before uh, Maine Lobster, Cousins Maine Lobster. Yeah, so I mean... The- <laughs> In, like in my personal life, you mean what I was doing? Yeah, like what were you doing? Like, like take us back to like you know, I know you, I know that you went to Holy Cross. Yeah. You're from yeah. Maine. Tell, yeah. t- take us to the beginning. Sure, your family. Yeah, so you know, I was born and raised in a small town in in Maine called Cape Elizabeth. It's just east of Portland, Maine. Um, really small town. There's no joke. Was no street lights, no fast food. Um, but it. Uh, but we were raised with. Uh, a lot of love, um, my sister, myself, and, and my mom and dad, and it was just a it was a really nice way to be brought up in Maine in general. Um, loved our town, and uh, you know, went through my freshman and sophomore year in high school there, um, and then I eventually went away to a boarding school uh, in New Hampshire that I did my junior and senior year at. Not just any boarding school, <laughs> Phillips Exeter Academy boarding school, yes. and that's yeah. special for me because I grew up. I went to high school in Exeter, not yeah. Phillips Exeter. <laughs> I wasn't as smart as Jimmy over here. Uh, but um, the amazing school. So, like, you, yeah. you must have been a smart kid. I'm assuming you always did well in school. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I worked hard. I mean, yeah. I, I would, I would be. Or were you one of those athletic recruits they had? I, I was an athletic recruit, so I was smart with <laughs> my hockey stick too, you know. But like, but no, the reality is, I, I cared about school just as much, like my whole way through. My mom was a school nurse, so that didn't help. I always had to be on my best behavior, you know. I had to pay attention, I had to learn, and I had to stay out of trouble. Um, but 
yeah, I, I, I wanted to do as well at school or academics as I did at hockey or anything in my life, which is looking back, I'm like, maybe that's kind of part of the motivation, um, no matter what's kind of in front of me. So it was a, it was an honor having been able to go to Exeter because it was still to this, this uh, day the two of my two of my favorite and best uh, academic years uh, of my life. Um, and then from there, you know, I went to Holy Cross, played, played hockey in college in, in Worcester. Um, and after that, I was living in the North End in Boston for four or five years with a bunch of my hockey buddies and uh, living living life and having a great time. So what was the significance of lobster? You said you grew up in Maine. It was mm-hmm. a part of your everyday. But like, why was lobster so important to your day-to-day like family routine rituals? Well, yeah, because I think my mother and my cousin's mother, my cousin Saban's mother, were lobster fiends. And as are a lot of people in Maine. But like, you know, there's like an extra level of lobster fiend. And so our, our mothers, it was around us all the time. And you weren't just Maine. You were coastal Maine. Yeah, we were coastal Maine. We were right on the water and like you had a lot of friends and family in, in the lobster industry. But no matter what we did as a family, it was always our our parents, our, our, our grandparents, our aunts and uncles, and then us cousins, you know, boys and girls run around at every holiday, you know, whatever the, the holiday was, the vacation, the backyard barbecue, the pool party. Every time we got together, we were 20 minutes apart. Um, it was just this, this crazy event that was always had some kind of presence of lobster, be it live lobsters, lobster rolls, lobster mac and cheese. Ooh, lobster mac but and cheese. it was always our mothers just ripping it out, dipping it in hot butter, probably swigging on a bottle of champagne or, you know, white wine. And that was, that's how we were brought up. We always saw it. It's like one of those things you go, you know, what is this meaning? Well, it was always around us. And it sounds kind of cheesy to say, but it was just always there. Um, and you don't always know what you don't know. And you don't really understand what not what to be grateful for, but you don't have an appreciation for yeah. it until sometimes later in life. You're like, oh my god, that was a, we were growing up with the best. It's all you in our ever backyard. knew. Yeah. yeah, and you don't like, like you say you don't know what you know until you get away from it. Right. And honestly, the Northeast. This is because I grew up not that far from you. Yeah. Like it's a, it's a great area to grow up, and you don't really realize how good you have it until you you get away from, from like where you grew up. It's but, true. So. You, we, so you're working, you, you go to Holy Cross, you graduate in 08, uh, you went for political science? Is that what I, I did, yeah. I, was, yeah. <laughs> I wanted to become a lawyer, so I was, I was doing English and poli-sci, and then I'm like, nope, because I'm not going to be a lawyer. I just, I wasn't, I couldn't, I couldn't do English. It's <laughs> it just like, you know, wait for this interview, see what you think of my English. But it's it's just one of those things, it wasn't, it wasn't for me, the class wasn't for me, and so I'm like, I guess I won't be a lawyer. So you got into sales. Yeah. So why sales? Sales because I think, you know, and my father would say this ever since I was young. I mean, at the age of probably 10 or 11, I was a janitor at my father's church, his Greek Orthodox church, working every week, uh, inside, outside, mowing, doing the toilets, the trash, uh, vacuuming, cleaning the whole place for four or five hours because my dad said to me, if you want those pair of shoes, if you want this thing, then I'd say, dad, I want those. He goes, you can go earn your, earn your own money. Yeah. And so I think that motivation or the hunger um, probably translated pretty well to sales saying, hey, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to eat what I kill, or, you know, I'm probably going to go on a full commission job, or I'm just want the ability to say, Hey, I'd like to make more money if my performance allows me to, if I want to work harder and harder and longer and longer, then it can manifest into something, uh, that's maybe a little bit more money for me, not to have money, just to be able to have some opportunities, you know, be it to live in the North end or be it to go to a Bruins game or yeah, buy a pair of shoes once a year, something like that. That's just kind of how it wasn't materialistic for me. It was just autonomy security. yeah, Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And so I got into medical device sales, um, and that was right out of college, and it was for a company called <clears throat> Strike Orthopedics. Great four-year career. Um, I still remember my owners, the day that they basically told me I'd get the job after a bunch of interviews, they said, you know, most people don't start out of college here. It's usually like, you know, they're 
their 40, 50, whatever later in their career that they're getting a job like this, you know, cause that's kind of how that industry was. Um, I was their first college hire. And so to me, that was kind of just kind of the opening and the beginning of saying, okay, well maybe things are changing here and maybe I'm going to kind of create a path for, for myself in this space. And then, you know, whatever's to come from there. What were you, what were you selling exactly? So I was selling, uh, implants for knees and hips, okay. broken ankles, broken ankles, broken hips, broken elbows, broken wrists. Um, so 90% of my days was in an operating room watching a surgeon implant these devices. Oh, I could not kind of do talk that. To I would have been passed out. <laughs> yeah. A lot of people, a lot of people were, you know, <laughs> could not do yeah. that. So you were making, I know, I know sales, especially, um, in like the wellness, uh, like, uh, I don't know the right words to use, but like surgical sale, like mm-hmm. anything to do with like the world of like medicine yeah. is usually pretty good. You're probably, I'm assuming you were making good money. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think at the time, I mean, again, I didn't really have a comp in terms of outside of some of my other buddies that would, you know, kind of willingly share kind of where they're at and where they were going. So I had like a little idea or, you know, some of your buddies that are in iBanking, et cetera. I thought that I had a pretty competitive job, you know, um, and and to my point earlier, like it had the ability to grow, not exponentially, but at a pretty good rate um, <clears throat> compared to maybe some salary jobs that are going to get a three, four or five percent uh, increase every year if they're if they're doing well. So. It was really ideal. I was living in the North End. I was with my buddies. I was having, I love Boston. It's my favorite city in the world. Um, and had security to your point. And my folks were two hours north. Uh, and then I decided to leave. Yeah. So why did you decide to leave? What was going on? Like, how did this idea for a lobster concept come into your mind? Yeah. So after, after college, you know, I hadn't seen my cousin Sabin, who grew up in Scarborough, uh, Maine. He had, he gone to Hofstra in New York. I had gone to Holy Cross. He was a couple of years older than me. And then he moved to Los Angeles. So we had kind of lost touch for you know, seven or eight years. And he had been out in LA. And, and uh, for whatever reason, I was going to go to LA for the first time in my life. I was going to visit an ex-girlfriend was the, was the intent of the trip originally. But 95% of my time was spent with Saban. So, you know, I went out there. I think it was in February. Um, and, you know, it was freezing back east. It's sunny there. You know, the beach, we did the whole LA vibe thing with myself and my cousin. It doesn't fi- take long to figure out why it's so overpopulated. No, no, not it's at all. No, I'm like, of course. And he's just rubbing <laughs> it in. He's like, what are you doing back home? Shoveling snow? I'm like, probably. Um, so, you know, that kind of gets your, your juices flowing a little bit. And long story short, you know, we went to a dinner on Sunset Boulevard, we went to a sushi joint. And one drink, you know, led to another and just kept going and going. And, and, and we, we are mama's boys at heart, you know, so we started kind of, as we got a little buzz, we started reminiscing about our childhood and about growing up in Maine. And what that was about was really family at the core. It was our, our parents, our grandparents, um, and of course us, a group of cousins. And so as we were talking about that, I'm like, man, you remember like the pool parties and Thanksgiving? Well, shit, we had, we had lobster at Christmas time and at Thanksgiving, like that was weird. You know, you're like... Oh, that was some of the best lobster in the world. And what was with some of the best lobster in the world were laughs and love. And so just kind of all this sense of happiness. Like, boy, that was perfect. Did you guys like order a lobster at this meal or something? I don't something? even think or we like- did. I was probably, Saban was probably too drunk to order. No, <laughs> I, uh, no, we were just sticking mostly like sushi shrimp, uh, excuse me, uh, you know, uh, tuna and shrimp and, some crab. I don't think we ordered anything lobster. That's fine. I'd be cheating on Maine. So you, um, <laughs> so you just started reminiscing about started the reminiscing, yeah, and going down memory lane. And and then so, you know, then it was kind of like, hey, how much time our grandparents had left? And it was more about family at that point. But then we kind of said, hey, well, 
why don't we do something together? You know, that was probably when we had the last martini we didn't need. And you know, alcohol gets a bad rep. <laughs> I, I feel like recently, like a lot of people are hating on alcohol yeah. and suggesting people should drink less. I, I think it's important that people realize the good of alcohol. drink more. I mean, yes, but also <laughs> like be responsible, like using oh, yeah. and abusing. Right. Yeah. And I think, I mean, I don't want to get into the whole of this. Like there's, I did this great episode with the author of drunk, yep. um, who kind of wrote this like whole like anthropological approach to alcohol over time and its impact on mm-hmm. society and, and civilization and its positive role. What people don't realize is there's so much alcohol today and yeah. it's stronger than ever before yep. that like, it's just like, we don't like, but if you're alive today, all you know is a, an abundant amount of alcohol at yep. your like disposal, but it's so good for connecting, like reconnecting with people, no lowering question. people's guards. And yep. it also shuts down your frontal lobe, yeah. which like it kind of it doesn't shut it down, but it kind of makes it go off on it a little bit where like you, it, you can just like, uh, like your creativity just goes crazy. Yeah, yeah. Like some of the best novels and books were written. The authors don't even remember writing those books, you know, but <laughs> it does, it helps you tap into this level of creativity because you're not uh, holding back. You're not thinking like, Oh, that's not possible. You just start dreaming. It's right. powerful. Well, I mean, I think you know, I don't need to say anything after you said that, but I mean, listen, I'm not sitting here going, oh, yeah, drink more. I was joking, but it, I do think it does allow that opportunity. Oh, like sure. you're saying, like, w- I mean, just as simple as saying, you know, that next drink that you have, and then your guard comes down. You're like, I mean, if you were having the stone sober, would we have been into the idea of starting a food truck? No, you would have would, instantly shut it down. So this like, is crazy. This is you know, would we have been like, yeah, let's fly lobster across the country. They'll be like, the frontal lobe. Get out of here, man. Like, stupid? What's, what's the next thing? We'll move on with our day. So I think it does allow an opening there. And, and that's really what happened is that we were, we were just love talking about our family, reminisce on those times. And wow, this is the best lobster ever grew up. We ever had experienced. And it was right in our backyard. Why don't we bring that here to Los Angeles? on these streets where we've been walking the last four or five days where we don't see any lobster that is that good of quality that we had and let's make it at an affordable price. And this is like, 2012. This is 2011. 11, thank you. Yeah, and we the whole affordable price thing is because it's not a high-end seafood steakhouse where you're getting you know the white linen cloth and champagne and it's going to be 200 plus bucks for a filet and a lobster tail, right? We said, let's give this to them. Take all the frills away. Yeah, down and dirty like we grew up with in Maine. The little lobster shack, lobster roll made for you. It's, you know, you know, you're not, you're not shucking the lobster on your cell, on your on your own, and it's going to be uh, affordable, yeah, right. And we're going to make it the best because you asked earlier about the restaurant industry. I, I haven't been part of the restaurant industry, but I went to the restaurants and the bars a lot. And what I did know is that I love the best customer service. I love that rapport, camaraderie. Someone that's treating you well, like I, like we always said, treat our customers like it's our mothers, right? Um, and then the other thing is the food. It's got to be it's got to be a ten. That's why I'll come back. And it always drove me crazy when I go to some places that were a, a local watering hole or this my favorite sandwich or whatever, and then they change your chicken or they change this. They just try to cut into their margin a bit. And the quality went down. I'm like, see ya. Yeah. It's just this it's again so simple. So, you know, that's what we did. And we and that was how the, the evening went at uh, Katana on Sunset Boulevard in West Hollywood. We woke up the next day with a hangover. Uh, I was flying back to Boston and kind of said, What about this idea? You know, and for the next 13 months, uh, we worked on it. So when when in uh, 2011 did this conversation happen? What month? It was in February, February. 2011. So almost 2000. Oh, wait. So the very beginning of Very beginning of 2011, yeah. So um, you opened your first location in 2012, right? 2012, April 27th, 2012. So almost a year and a half later. Right. Yeah. Uh, so about a year and like, what, three months later, yeah. essentially? Yeah. So you started this conversation by saying, you know, uh, there was this, this, this quote on being prepared, mm-hmm. right? 
technically, you guys had zero restaurant experience. <laughs> like from the outside looking in, it's like you were wholeheartedly unprepared. You know, yeah. like you had no restaurant experience. Like right. you have you have no idea what you're really getting yourself into. You have these secure jobs that are paying you well that give you security and autonomy, mm-hmm. and you're walking away from that. Is what's going through my when I hear this? Like what? How badly did you want to explore this this <laughs> lobster idea to to leave all that behind? Yeah, I mean, I think it's well, – you bring up a lot of things. Um, You're like, yeah, when you say it yeah, like that, why did I do like, that? Okay, what did I do? Um, listen, I don't think it was just about lobster. I think it was about the, – the beauty of lobster was that, one, it's an amazing product, and it's something that's so meaningful to us, and it is our roots. It's from where we are from. Um, then the other side of it is also that aspirational entrepreneurial trip and journey of like, again, whether it be sports or whatever, it gets your passions flowing – like going to that next level and challenging yourself and uh, this is not enough and, and keep growing and keep going, which I think we've seen over our 11 years now. So you take those two and combine them, an amazing product with some vehicle or way, quite literally a vehicle at the time, to get it to the market. Um, then it becomes this this job that is an entrepreneurial trip that is always about kind of recreating our childhood of Maine and lobster. And there's no better combination for us. Um, so that's kind of how we really fell into it. But to your question about being prepared, you're right. There's no technicality. I had no restaurant experience. My cousin had a little bit, but when I say preparation, knowing that I didn't have that, knowing that I wasn't a, a chef or that I was never a bus boy, I never worked in restaurants just made me focus more on what I just told you. Preparation. So for those six, 15, 16 months while we were trying to figure out what this build business would look like, be it the distribution, the supply, or the quality of the team sourcing from Maine, everything from the menu, right? Lobster was the star, but the last thing on our menu was that we added was chowder before mm-hmm. we launched. And that's because I went through like 38 chowders trying to figure out what the right kind of consistency and quality and recipe would be for that chowder to speak as much or as well as the lobster does. It's not just lobster, right? We do the same thing with French fries or coleslaw, whatever it may be, like everything matters. So that was the preparation of my end. Saban was preparing on the West coast with the ops, the truck itself, the team, the training. Of course, we were not going to hit everything out of the park. We weren't, you know, we hadn't been in business, right? We, there was so many voids to your point. I mean, I called 72 lenders to try and get a financing on a food truck and they go, what? What's the name of your business? I'm like, mm, it's an LLC called Cousins Main Lobster. They're like, do you have a truck? Nope. You have any history? Nope. Any sales? Nope. You ever been in the restaurant? Nope. So basically everything I just said. Correct. Just, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but but it makes you, but then kind of comes in that fuel, that entrepreneur thing I'm talking about. Cool. You're going to tell me no. I'm going to keep going until someone tells me yes. yes. And I'm just tagging along with that eventually lobster, right? And so <clears throat> not tagging along. I mean, it's those two. It's the entrepreneurial thing that is the business and it's the lobster that's the star of the show that's our food. So, that's what I mean by preparation. We made sure we knew that we had exposure. We knew that we had voids. We knew that we didn't know so much stuff in this space. Um, never mind starting a business. That can be totally separate of food, right? Um, so we had to work harder. We had to make sure that we have to give, our, give ourselves the best chance to have an opportunity to, to so you, succeed. You had a year and like five months from February 2020, sorry, February 2011 to uh, 2020, sorry, 2012 yep. in April, about a year and five months. Mm-hmm. My math might be off about a month or two. But um, like, what were the biggest challenges in that first year and a half almost? Yeah, I mean, well, first of all, <laughs> you don't know. This is a lot. I mean, you're, you're, if you're talking about, talking about sourcing, we want to find lobster that is available 
at higher quantities than what we uh, were used to picking out of a <laughs> live lobster on our on our picnic table, right? Right. Um, that would meet the quality and spec that we thought we experienced as kids pulling it out, and you realize that it is so far, uh, so much more involved than like <laughs> just uh, cooking a lobster. Right? We don't cook the lobsters on the truck or in the restaurants. We make sure the lobsters cook the same way for us every time in Maine. But we didn't know what we didn't know. Okay, so I was curious. So you're not shipping live lobster, yeah. so you're shipping We're just shipping the, the meat, meat, just the meat, meat. Okay. and and that alone is just because it's just like a fillet, right? I can give you three different fillets. They're both fillets. One could be really chewy. One could be tough. One could be tender. Um, one could be, be depends on how you cook them, but then there's all obviously different grades too. And the same thing for lobsters, um, and how they go from kind of the ocean floor into lobster meat that's in a bag. Like they can chew and eat, uh, and taste completely differently. I mean, I wasn't expecting, this isn't really like a food podcast, but you, you got me interested because I think lobster, I mean, oh, they're all bugs, man. Uh, like they're just, they're just ocean bugs. Well, like, on the floor they are. So how does like, how do you, like, how does like the, the, how does the grade vary? Like, yeah. Get into that. That's a good question. It's, uh, you know, like, like any other animal, I mean, you can haul a trap up to the, to the boat, you know, we take our franchisees and ourselves out <clears throat> and you can have a lobster that's damaged, cracked open, they call them a cull if you have one one claw instead of two. So think about that if it's any other animal that's before being you know cooked or processed. If it's damaged, if it's weak, right? Versus a lively, healthy lobster that's coming out of its claws, they're going like this. It's all intact. Uh, those are two differences of where you're starting at right off the ocean floor to how it's going to be cooked and then what it's going to taste like. And one is far different than another. And on top of that, there's hard shell versus soft shells, right? So there are hard shell lobsters that a lot of people love, especially tourists. They go, oh, that's, it's more meat inside. There is. There's more meat filling up that shell. But when that happens, the, the meat can be a little uh, more robust, okay? Whereas I love and what we grew up with was soft shell lobsters. They can crack into after you cook with your own hands. There's less meat, more water content, but the the, the meat is really sweet and juicy and tender. Mm. So we try and work on those. And then and then when you get into you know bigger volume like we are now, it's really about how everything's being cooked and the cool temperatures and you know where it's being held in terms of like what as it's cooling as a lobster from being cooked. Uh, how quickly it's being picked, the soft shell versus the hard shell, and of course the quality that goes into the cooker in the first place, like I mentioned. So this is all happening in the first year and a half before opening, figuring out what's the process of it, like, uh, like, 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 how do we procure our lobster? What's yeah, that process. Correct. Like? Yeah, I mean that's what it is. I mean not to the same detail that we've done the last probably five or six years. Like I'm sure, as you scale, yeah, yeah, you, yeah. you got to figure it out. Yeah, and you learn far it. more. But yeah. yes, you need to find a supplier that you could trust and. You know, it's no different while I'm from there and you can kind of knock on doors and know a lot of little connections because Maine is probably like New Hampshire, a small little state. You play the high school name game and you know everyone, right? So so there's a lot of connections to be made, but we're also new, right? We're, we're saying, hey, this is what we're going to do. We're going to, well, we have a food truck. We're going to start in Los Angeles. You know, probably half the people were rolling their eyes and be like, okay, kid, let me know. So when you were planning this, did you think that you were going to be buying lobster from like the store, like in like doing everything, like all the No, we, we were, I would drive up and down the coast and I would go into like little, little, you know, fish shacks. Like, can you give me 20 pounds a day? You know, can I take 30 pounds a day? And that was built off of, and they were going to just fly it overnight, ship it from their store. Did you have the foresight that it was going to be cooked and processed? I did that. I, I had smart. the foresight on that. Um, but I think didn't. Think about the labor you would have. Yeah. The, 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 I mean, cooking lobster is not too difficult. It's right. The process is it, but the process of, of getting all processing and getting it, yeah, for sure. all the meat out, yeah. is that's labor intensive. Yeah, there's no question. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the, the, that was a big part is procuring all the products, of course, the lobster, <clears throat> understanding how we get to Los Angeles, um, and then what happens if it was 
raining in LA or what happens if we got really busy on the weekend and we needed more, what other capacities, who was the right group? Uh, cause as a very seafood lobster centric food truck, the one thing you can never be without is lobster. It's not like we can right. run out of lobster and sell whoopie pies, you know? Right. So why, why Los Angeles and not Boston? Well, number one, it, again, just by chance, Saban was living out there for six years before I went out. And because he was there and because I went there, you look around and the food truck industry was starting to go like this. Like I didn't even know what a food truck was being from Maine and Boston, but out there they were, they're roaming around and it was, it had evolved from the days of like the roach coach, the white trucks that were just catering vehicles. It got their name much like kind of lobsters, the crustacean of the sea did. Um, they had began to become more, uh, elegant, uh, a little bit more high end where they were selling, uh, like tacos yeah. or sandwiches. When was the food truck started the crave? Was that like early 2000s? Really? It was probably like, probably like, no, I'd really even say the early 2000s, probably yeah. 2006, 2008. Like yeah. 2008 was probably like the heyday yeah. where it was like really like the wild, wild west of food trucks and you could make a good yeah. living. The regulations hadn't quite caught up. Correct. Yeah. 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 But you started to see all these different food and it became far more gourmet ever since, you know, we, we even entered the game. But, that was why we saw the mobility of food. We saw it going to the market. I think that was the thing. It was a lower cost investment. And again, if you want to work and you want to be prepared and you want to hustle and grind and you're an entrepreneur and you want to give yourself a chance to succeed, let me go find the people. And that was kind of the beauty of the truck. Like if I choose a restaurant, I pick the wrong location on my first investment. Maybe the thing never gets off the ground because I don't know about the real estate. Right. But with the truck, I can go over there and fail. But the next day I can put it somewhere else. And that's on me. That's literally what I did was, was book the truck, whether it be the office buildings or the events or the breweries or, you know, first Fridays, whatever it may be caterings. Like that's just that kind of fit the medical device thing. There was always upside. There was always sales to be done. I just had to find them. So was it was it a food truck from the very beginning? It was, yeah. Okay. We launched that April twenty seventh of two thousand twelve. Even from like the idea of like from the drunken night of like let's do lobster, oh, or was it, like, let's do a no. Food we truck? were between a restaurant or a, a truck. I think your ego might be a little bit more restaurant driven because that's like the sexy, glamorous, you know, restaurant store your own four right. walls. Um, but the food truck is what won out because you know again we put our own savings into this. We were just really going to be a passion project and kind of recreate our childhood, like I was talking about. And so you can do that for a lower investment with some potential upside um, and mitigating some risk, um, yeah. you know, if it doesn't work. So that was kind of the idea. Eventually, we said, okay. I remember Saban calling me from LA probably three, four months in. He's like, okay, it's going to be a food truck. Yeah. No restaurant. Well, We're moving forward with that. I think it may, like, and I, I'm kind of been sitting on this idea. I have a question. I'm going to give you a little teaser. I'm going to ask you this question later. Knowing what you know now in the world we live in today, if you had to start over, Starting today, would you still do a food truck? Yes. You would still do a food yeah. truck? Okay. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to package that. Okay. Um, so, I mean, now this, this back to this question between Boston versus L.A. I'm thinking in 2012, there wasn't a fast, casual lobster joint even in New England. Yeah. There were shacks all over the place, right? Uh, but if there wasn't like a single branded lobster only concept, maybe with the exception of Red Lobster, but mm -hmm. they weren't. A fast casual they were doing they weren't even doing all lobster they were doing right. seafood right yeah. Yeah. so like um that, i was curious about why but i mean you think about if you go out to la there's literally no places that do just lobster right. so like you have a unique song proposition and it might be much more expensive because you got to fly it out there yep. but there's also a lot of money in la so you have this target audience of people who probably are implants that miss yeah. lobster so i'm thinking that's probably the better place to go 
Yeah, and that's kind of how we looked at it too. So, you know, there was to your point, there may not be a the the, the QSR specific one in the New England, but there was lobster in New right. England, right? Where it. in LA, like again, you got to go to the highest end steak or seafood house to to find a lobster tail right. or a lobster roll, and even then, and to this day. I still don't think the quality is necessarily amazing. Um, so we th- saw like an opportunity there, like a, certainly a void in the market. Um, and then to your point, it's 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 it, it wasn't just that Beverly Hills was there because we originally thought, oh, Beverly Hills, people are going to have a disposable income and we can go because we sold everywhere. You know, and that was a quick learning curve for us. We thought we had to have people with uh, high-end money around us uh, because we would have a higher cost product to customers than – a grilled cheese. Um, however, we found that it worked in every little nook and cranny of LA. Nice. So in getting open, like were there any obstacles in your way? Aside, like <laughs> you, you couldn't get a bank to invest in your yeah. sound. Like that's not yeah. like an obstacle. So is that one of the reasons why you started as a food truck too? Cause you needed to start small. Yeah. I mean, I think so. There was only a certain amount of money that Saban and I both, we both put in $20,000. How much of our own savings? Did you think you needed? What was your, your pro forma? Did you well, for the, for the truck, what, you, what was the total cost that you thought you were going to need to, about, to start? Uh, for the truck, about eighty to hundred thousand, and then probably another twenty to forty thousand for you operation. know capex yeah. and operations. Um, so call it one hundred and forty. Uh, the truck ended up being like eighty five thousand. But again, give yourself a little runway for the for the coming months and 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 training and uh, again to your point, ops and equipment and capital. Um, so we each put in twenty grand. We financed the rest eventually when we found that the other company would do it. Um, that was a huge obstacle. I mean, hell, most people probably just stopped calling for lending, in which case the business, the idea never would have happened in the first place, right? Just like I was saying earlier. Um, but we did, we worked through it. Um, and our first good omen came in that the truck that we bought, it was a used truck and it was a former Cape Cod chip truck. So we kind of thought, Hey, well, this is back East. So, (laughs) you know, this is, this has got to be good. A Cape Cod chip truck, uh, transformed into cousins made lobster truck. So that was our very first truck. And the other challenges obviously came in that, you know, this is where not being in the industry clearly, you know, hindered us a little bit. Uh, when we went to our very first opening on April 27th, 2012, it was in Artesia, in Artesia Boulevard, uh, kind of like the South Bay of, of LA. And we showed up about 45 minutes late. Uh, we had a line of 60 people because we had put it out on Twitter with like, you know, 200 followers that we were coming. And so you had 200 followers and you had a line of 60 people. Yeah. That's a devoted following. That's well, and I think huge... you're, you're finding a lot of those people that are East coasters are like, Oh my God, these guys are going to yeah. sell lobster rolls. Right. We had one little thing on urban daddy, which was like a little, uh, you know, blog that came out saying we're going to be here. Um, <clears throat> we had 12 people working on a truck. One of them was my ex girlfriend, by the way. Wow. Um, it comes full circle, right? We didn't have a register. Was she still your girlfriend then? No. Okay. Interesting. <laughs> uh, we <laughs> didn't be a nice guy. <laughs> we didn't have a register. Um, on our first night of service, forgot that. It's not like we chose to not bring it. We just didn't have one. The 12 people on our truck had never flipped a bun, buttered a bun, you know, the bread that we use for the lobster meat, never trained, hadn't done a thing. Um, so we were doing our training literally as we were rolling in, 45 minutes late with a line of 70 people. Ended up doing about seven or $8,000 in cash that night. We went and got an old school register uh, at a store around the corner. Did you uh, sell out? We sold out. Um, and you know, Saban and I just talked to everyone in line the whole night. We gave away free whoopie pies, obviously to kind of keep them <laughs> calm. But we Very were kind of, yeah, you know, and it's, we did, we just talked to people cause that's kind of what we would have thought with the hospitality back home. Like that's what people want to hear. Like, tell me about who you guys are, but where you're from, what, where's this product? Why is it going to be exceptional? You know, and you just kind of have that, 
that banter back and forth, a little bit of education on the product, of course, you know, left with five-star reviews and uh, cash we didn't know what to do with because we didn't even have a bank account. What so, kind of questions were you asking? Were you looking for like feedback, data? Like what was the goal of asking all these questions? Well, it was going both ways. You know, we were asking questions to them, you know, <clears throat> where are you from? How'd you end up in LA? Oh, you're East Coast? You know, you know how many East Coast connections there are? Or every story someone would have about, I went to Maine as a kid. I went there, you know, to camp. Or I brought my grandfather there. Or my, um, you know, family member who's dying, their last wish was to have lobster. I mean, there's always some sort of it's a, connectivity yeah, with Maine a, and lobster. It's a high experience thing to do. It's not like you're yeah. just, it's, when you go to eat lobster, it's, for the first time, it's, it's. I mean, we grew up with it, right? But even growing up with it, it's like a special thing. For sure. Like you put the newspaper on the table. <laughs> it's a big event. It's an experience. <laughs> and if you're if you're older and you experience it for the first time, it's definitely one of those things you're never going to forget. Right. Yeah. There's an emotional connection with the experience of eating lobster. There's no sure. question. Yeah. And so a lot of those emotional connections would come out in conversation. And so now you're talking and then all of a sudden, 10 minutes passes, they get a roll, they had a good conversation. So did we. We say, hey, listen, like, let me know what you think. And please, you know, let us know online or whatever. And so then our, then our star rating would, would start pretty solid. Our Yelp reviews would be uh, pretty great about us, obviously the food and just caring about the business. These two cousins that are from Maine starting a business. Did you know how smart you were to, to focus on doing one thing really well? Or was that just an accident? You know, I don't, I think that, um, I think we went in with that focus. Um, Cause even then we can like, We've deviated a little bit, still lobster centric, but you know, over the years, lobster tacos, lobster, although started in day one, but lobster tots, lobster grilled cheese, lobster quesadilla, it's still all lobster, but some things Different like vehicles to yeah, some, and we've added fish and clams at certain places, but in general, it stays tight. And f- the reason for that is kind of what I was saying earlier to you is like, I customer service and a 10 of a product, no matter what it is, nachos, burgers, steak, I don't care. Usually when you go to a place and you open the menu and there's 500 things on it, you're like, oh boy, they're not going to do one thing well. Yeah. You know, and even if there's, even if there's, it's just, it creates more room for error. And so we just said, if we want to keep it simple, the truck is tiny as is, you got two or three people in there current day. Um, so let's make it doable. Let's make it something that ticket times can, you know, quite literally tick, tick, tick out the window real quickly. And let's not slow it down. And let's give people that are looking for lobster the best lobster that we haven't changed in 12 years now. On that note, let's take a quick break to thank our sponsors. And we'll be right back to talk about the business model, what the first couple of days were like, the challenges, how you overcame those, and how you grew and evolved as a restaurateur. This episode made possible by Owner.com. Owner.com is the quickest and easiest way for your customers to order directly from you without the expensive 30% commission fees. Look. With Owner.com, you'll save thousands every month when customers order through your website and branded app instead of third-party delivery apps and reward your customers with a built-in loyalty program that turns them into regulars who order again and again. Owner.com also helps you rank higher on Google with world-class search engine optimization built specifically for restaurants with an AI-powered website. We cannot forget lists. Build a huge list of people who live near your restaurant fast and market to that list on autopilot with text and email sent at the perfect time to help you grow sales and stay top of mind. Owner.com gives you everything you need to grow and market your restaurant online with no contracts or hidden fees. Visit 
owner.com slash unstoppable right now to book your free demo and see why thousands of restaurant owners trust owner.com to power their restaurants online. Recently on the show, you've been hearing it come up often. Restaurant Systems Pro. If you've become interested, I highly recommend you sign up for the Restaurant System Pro 60-day pilot program. This is something that's never been done before. This 60-day event is at no cost to you, but it's not for everyone. Fred Langley, CEO of Restaurant Systems Pro, will be leading a group of restaurateurs through the Restaurant Systems Pro software and setting up the system for your restaurant. Fred will be leading the training, supporting you, and holding you accountable. Typically, this costs $10,000 a month to have Fred in your restaurant, but during this no-cost-to-you 60-day training, he will be teaching you every process he does during the group coaching sessions, and nothing will be held back. During the 60 days, Fred will walk you through the Restaurant Systems Pro process and help you crush the following goals. Recipe costing cards, guidance in your books for accounting, cash control, sales forecasting with accuracy, checklist, budgeting for the entire year, scheduling for profit, more butts in seats, and that's not it. Often, the team at Restaurant Systems Pro helps restaurateurs out pro bono because their hearts go out to these folks. I mean, it's hard out there, but because of that, a lot of the time these restaurateurs don't follow through because they have no skin in the game. For that reason, there is an application process. Only those serious about making change in their operation will be accepted into this program. Are you interested? Then go to restaurantunstoppable.com slash RSP. That's RSP for Restaurant Systems Pro. RestaurantUnstoppable.com slash RSP. We're back. So paint the picture of what your menu was back in 2012. Yeah, so we opened with a main roll and a Connecticut roll. Main roll is chilled lobster meat, a little bit of mayonnaise inside the bun, buttery toasted bun from New England. Well, from Maine. And then the Connecticut version is that same lobster meat warmed in butter and then a little lemon butter on top. In a in a New England style toasted bun as well. Got it. Now those are the only no. Two so things. those are the only two rolls. Got it. So we did lobster tacos, kind of because we were opening in California, LA. Kind of hit that. Then we had a chowder, a bisque, and believe it or not, a lobster martini. We opened with which was a. Were you allowed to sell alcohol? No, chowder? it wasn't. It wasn't alcohol. It was <laughs> oh, okay. just a plastic martini glass with lobster <laughs> meat, wedge of lettuce, lemon, some olives. So for the carb avoidant people, bingo. So um, yeah, five items I counted just then. Yeah, did I say chowder and bisque? Yeah, so yeah. two two soups. Yeah, tacos. Two t- oh, so f- two versions of the lobster roll, yep. uh, the tacos, and then... Um, chowder, bisque, and lobster martini, so six. So, six. Yeah. so, but really, it's all the same stuff, just going out slightly tweaked. Correct. So, what's the... I don't know if you did this intentionally or if it was by accident, but there's almost a level of genius associated with that, which is <laughs> makes me not wonder why shark take was reaching out to you right because like it's such a simple concept a lot of your labor is being done before it ever gets to you so Mm -hmm. you're literally just taking it you're like the last few steps you're just finishing it and handing it to somebody so labor low throughput high there's so many reasons i mean it's a it's a high quality item that is desirable you know like what am i missing keep going as to why this is a good concept no i mean i think you're right it's it's simplicity it's focusing on quality, like we've never deviated on the quality, which I think no matter what you're serving, you can do, right? And you tend to do if you have success, in my opinion. You, you deviate from what got you there, and I never understood it. Um, so we always kept our lobster standard, you know, where it was from day one. Um, 
It's a small truck. It gets to go to the market. You go find people. You're going to do sales. To your point, again, we're not serving burgers or tacos where in LA you can get those on every street corner. So something different. It was unique. It was a delicacy. It oftentimes led to emotional connections for people, young and old. Um, And we could move volume real quickly. So when there are people on our line, to your point, lobster meat comes from our partners in Maine ready to go. So whether it's going in a bun for a main roll or a Connecticut roll or in tacos or in a little bisque or a lobster quesadilla now or whatever it may be, we can move tickets and we can do sales, but we're not taking away from the customer experience or the quality of the food that they're having. Rather, it's quite the opposite. You can come get uh, an amazing lobster meal, whatever it is that suits your fancy, and you can walk out of there for far less than, whether it's our restaurants now or our food trucks, far less than you would at a high-end restaurant and what I believe is better quality every time. Yeah. Um, so what was, you said the first time you, you, you were open, the first day you were open, you did seven, 8,000 yeah, ballpark. Just worth about eight sales, grand. Yeah. Eight grand. Um, I'm assuming you, you fine tuned the process, right? Like, <laughs> nope, how, it's still the same today. Well, like <laughs> my point is what, with what, how long did it go take you for, to go from one location to two locations or one truck to two trucks? Yeah, that was pretty quick. Actually. We, well, I don't know. We did it within probably, probably 10 months, 10 months. Um, but yeah, we've, we fine-tuned the cash sitting on the apartment floor pretty quickly. Right. Because my dad was like, hey, what's going on? My dad was a CFO. He's like, might as well get going here on this what aspect. I'm, what I'm curious, if you did 8000 the first day, no systems, no processes, no cash register, mm-hmm. like how good did you get that single unit economics going before you went to two? Yeah. Like what was like, – like how much volume? We, we mastered that pretty quickly because you realize it obviously you had to, right? And and as I said, with the preparation and all the things, like that's where we had some deficiencies, right? <clears throat> You know, whether it be just handling cash and credit and payouts and gratuity and, you know, your your finances in general, realize that we were not those guys. Um, so we ended good, up having... Good thing you're cash heavy. Right? Yeah. Because yeah. you get a lot of forgiveness. Well, right? yeah. And you got to be careful of that, right? It's well, a, it's don't a, spend that. Yeah. It's it's a really... Um, it's a slippery slope. Did especially in trouble? What's that? Did, like, with like cash flow and not maybe putting enough aside for, say, taxes? No, 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 <laughs> not that. No, no. What I mean is, you know, what I was really referring to is that, like, in the food truck world, you can have things going out the back door because everyone's a friendly friendly with the other right, food trucks, right. right? So we could be trading 10 lobster rolls one night for 10 ice cream cones. Yeah, like, not the that same. doesn't work out, yeah. right? And, but you're new on the scene. You're like, oh, this is good. And it's going to come back to you with sales. Like, bad idea. We, so we stopped that pretty quickly in, yeah. you know, without trying to look like the bad guy. But no, you just need to be very cognizant of everything because to your point, you're 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 building a balance sheet. You gotta have cash, you gotta have for the for the rainy days, quite literally, or the winter when the when the season slows down, or for things you want to do next, like get that next truck. Right. Um, so what was your best single unit operation like number that you can remember? In terms of sales? Yeah. Uh our op- best operation, my first probably two or three years booking the truck was probably like a hundred and ten thousand uh, dollars in in a month of sales. In a month. Yeah. And what about one day? Do you have like a, an idea? Yeah, for us, uh, we had probably a thirty-two or $33,000 day. Wow. Yeah. So you like 5 x it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, that's amazing. Yeah. And I, I'm thinking like how much freaking lobster can you fit on a truck? <laughs> well, it's surprising you can fit a lot because it's, <laughs> you know, it's, the, it's the, 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 the bags that it comes to us from uh, – it comes from Maine to us. It's uh, That's actually not our biggest concern. The biggest concern is the bread. You know, those boxes and loafs of or, or the, the rolls take up a lot of space. I was going to say that's probably the bottleneck. I'm thinking about yeah. like, wh- like what is going to like what's going to slow down this process of the lobster going from the refrigerator to the hand of the, yeah. the guest. And it's buttering and toasting the bread. That's yeah. probably your slow. Yeah. And, and, the, and the storage space for the bread. Right. But yeah. but but 
also to your point, if you're hustling these these really busy days because people are in line and you have a 12-hour service and you're seven hours in, you're like, oh man, we're going to need more meat. All of our locations now throughout the country, 12 years later, have these you know satellite commissaries nearby that just get deliveries, right? So like you'll you'll restock lobster or mayo or butter or bread, whatever is needed. But they can hold. We've really kind of developed the trucks so much. Like one thing we're very proud it's about is that custom now. it's yeah, it's, it's, it's a lobster you know, it's slinging bells machine. and whistles, and it's a lobster slinging machine, and it's built for all these things that you're talking about that yeah. I can't remember from 11 years ago. But there's some from five, six, or two or three years ago. Like, oh, we need more space here, or we need to do this little. Yeah, you know, now you can customize it yeah. to make it do what you were trying sure. to do. Yeah. Whereas yeah. before, you were kind of just working with what you right. had. Yeah, but that's how everybody should start. And I, and I yeah. love that you just started because I think sometimes people analysis by paralysis. Yeah. They want to get it exactly right, yeah. and whatever you think it's going to be. You put so much time into fine-tuning what you think is going to happen. It almost never goes according to plan. Well, you know, some of the best stories when we were, especially in L.A., those first few years <clears throat> after Shark Tank, like we'd be at the truck and people would come up like, oh, my God, you're Jim or Saban and uh, I saw you on Shark Tank and this is your, you're here. Like you did it. We're like, yeah, and you start talking to these people. And what you really oftentimes hear is like, oh, I had this idea and I was going to do it too. Not a lobster truck, whatever. It could be selling pencils. I have no idea. They were going to make something and build something and start something. And the biggest difference, and I say, well, why haven't you done it? You know, or, or you haven't done it, right? Like, you still can, but you got to take a leap. That's right. like the biggest thing. Is like some people talk about it, talk about it, and talk about it, and that's okay. But like, if you really want to see if it works, take the leap and figure it out. That keeps, I meant to ask you earlier. How long did you guys keep your part time, your full time job? Kept mine for like four and a half months after so, opening. Yeah, so, so we opened April twenty seventh, um, two thousand twelve, and uh, by October, I was I had moved out to L.A. And I think I quit my job in September. So were you just kind of like a like a capital partner slash like like how were you involved? So really, I was doing everything like kind of main end, be it oh, okay. so ordering logistics, shipping, it. all those headaches, trucking, product issues with product or whatever it may be. And when I say issues with product, I mean like oh, I didn't get there, you know. Yeah. Um, and then going to Maine probably twice a week, you know, checking in. Our how many stuff. people were on your team in the first year? Was myself, it just four of you? myself, and Sabin. Um, ex-girlfriend and, yeah, no, she was only there for a couple of weeks she was but just now we had like a manager um, and, and again loosely used right we had a manager because we weren't going to be on the truck Saban was going to run or work his real estate business and kind of check in on the ops and the training and kind of talk about Maine and things that we wanted our staff talking about so it was a manager and a couple of people working on the truck doing $130 a day 130,000 on a month. In a month. Yep. But still, <coughs> Excuse me. Well, 32,000 was your best day. That's what you said. 32,000 best day. Yep. Yeah. I mean, those are great yeah. margins, man. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, the sales always got everyone really excited in a good and a bad way. It's good for Shark Tank and Barbara. It shows a path to having strong sales. But our staff would be like, oh my gosh, did 32,000? You must be a millionaire. Yeah, but I was going to say, what are your prime costs? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. They don't realize that. You're shipping the lobster across the, the country. And never mind the shipping, but just lobster in general. Go compare it to anything. We used to do exercises with them eventually when we saw that, kind of learned that this was in their head. Um, we'd be like, you know, go go look at your, your fish shop or your, your butcher and see what it costs for, you know, tenderloin filet. Were you doing or, open book management? Or what? Were you doing open book management? <clears throat> we, we, we did some exercises years in. Just to give them perspective, because like this isn't as glamorous as it looked. Yes, we do high sales dollars, but remove to your point prime costs and cogs cost of goods for us that is unlike others. Um, and our payroll might be a little bit better than some. But then there's the other pieces of just the trucks and the fixes and the small biz and like you know there isn't all that much hanging out at the end of the day when you're starting a business, especially for two guys. 
um, who have quit their jobs, you know, so it's, it wasn't that glamorous. And then you could go further and say, well, these, these staff members could read what the price of live lobster was a pound in Maine, but the live lobster price is so wildly far off from a processed price of lobster, right? So they the even got more skewed. Can you give me well, idea? like yeah, live lobster is like, if you go buy a live lobster on the dock for eight bucks back in 2012, yeah. the processed meat price could have been high 20s or low 30s. Right. Because that's one lobster that could maybe get you a quarter pound of meat out of it. So it's not even a pound. Like, you know what I mean? It's right. not even a pound of meat yet. It's, it's, it's far from it. And that doesn't include all the things that you said with the cooking and the cooling and the picking and the labor and everything that these plants are doing to get you a finished product. And I'm product. assuming you're flying these out. You're shipping these things out. Like, what's that? Like, what's, yeah. so what's it after it's processed, right? $20. Yeah. How much... a uh, like how much lobster are you flying out on a daily basis? Well, back then I couldn't even tell you. I'd have to go look at invoices, which is actually a fun little thing. But we probably fly I don't know. hundreds of pounds of lobster a week. Oh, a week, yeah, yeah. for sure, yeah, yeah. So yeah. Would I mean, you probably do it like once a week, or twice a week, three no, times. No, we a week? were shipping them every day except wow. for the weekend. Yeah, we'd do that, and we and so you know we'd even be sending you know some frozen items like our soups take like, overnight, which was crazy. I was gonna say too bad you can't get points for all the yeah. the travel the <laughs> frickin' travelers. Yeah. When if the we could go back. <laughs> Um, so where are you today? Help, help paint the picture of where you started. And then sure. just real quick without getting into like a bunch of details of where you are today, mm-hmm. but like how many units, how many yeah. cities? Yeah. Started with one food truck, uh, April 27th, 2012. And current day we have 62 food trucks and eight restaurants, uh, in 40 cities throughout the country. So okay. 70 units in 40 cities throughout the country. So in six, I know in six years, you went from uh, one food truck to uh, what was it? Thirty-two food trucks in fifteen cities and eight locations. Mm-hmm. So you've almost you've you've since two thousand and eighteen have almost tripled in size. Yeah. Is that right? Yep. So <clears throat> thirty-two food trucks today. You're at well, how many? We have sixty-two food trucks today. So doubled the amount of food yep. trucks, and you maintained the amount of brick and mortars. Yeah, we started those later. Then COVID came, and it wasn't you know it's not our bread and butter like the food trucks were. Like we've just perfected the brick and mortars. It started late, so they haven't grown with the same velocity. Um, but also, we're you know we started as a food truck business, and that's been really appealing to a lot of people. Uh, and we, we started you know franchising in two thousand fifteen, which is the real growth of the business. And why you can really kind of get that hockey stick curve of, yeah. like you're saying, because franchisees do well, just like we did with one truck. They want the second truck. They want the third truck. They want the fourth truck. They want the restaurant. It's really quick, a quick turn to produce another truck and get on the road. So you were in 15 cities in 2018, and now you're in how many? 40? 40. 40? So that's where you more than double the amount of cities mm-hmm. you're in. So that kind of paints the picture of the level of scale you've had yeah. in uh, 10 years. What is it? 2012 to 2000, oh, a little over 10, 11 yeah. years. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. Thank 11 you. years. That's amazing. Um, so I guess from now on going forward, like what were the transformative moments? Like my mission statement is to inspire, empower and transform the industry. And I really like to look at like the transformation of the individuals and their organizations over time. So like along that vein, like what was like the next big thing for you? If you guys opened in April of 2012, um, what was the next big boom for you? Like what was the next, like if this is first gear, mm-hmm. what was second gear? Yeah. Well, so, um, once we went all in, we knew you had to make, you had to make it work, right? We were two relatively grown men. Um, and we needed to obviously make money and it was a passion for us, you know, turn passion project into like our careers. So we had to go from that one corporate truck and we went to the second, the third and the fourth within 
two years, you know, generate more revenue, hopefully have a little bit more bottom line. Um, and it was Barbara from Shark Tank, our partner, who said, you know, you guys should franchise this. It's scalable. You can put it in all kinds of different cities. Uh, we didn't know what franchising meant. Um, but again, we, we prepared as best as we possibly could for about a year, maybe probably 12 or 14 months, excuse me, before we launched the franchise. Um, and with that, we had about 2,000 requests. And you're fine. We, we're drinking some of the liqueurs over yeah, here. So I know. Bubbles, just, uh, hey, we're doing a, our best. Which was a beer. Um, <laughs> the uh, we had two thousand requests, and we only sold ten of those to franchisees. Um, so we franchised ten units. Um, that was in 2015, and so that when ten you say franchisees, 2015, right? Exactly. And where were you before Barbara came on? One truck, three months, three months of business. And I know there's a little bit of a story that like. They they reached out. Usually, people reach out to Shark Tank. Mm-hmm. And they're, they're pitching their concept. They're trying to get investment. But this wasn't the case for you. No, yeah, that was actually that first night that I told you we uh, did the cash sales with no register. We uh, got contacted that night. We went home. We had an email and a phone call from Shark Tank. They're casting, saying, you know, I think you guys would be great for the show. Did they ever tell you why they reached out to you? What it was? Yeah, because one of the casting directors were it was in our line, and from, they had is from New England. <laughs> actually, surprisingly, yes, yeah. from New England. Had our food. Probably hadn't had anything like that out in L.A. Said, you know, food truck's cool, different, never been on the show. Um, you guys seem great. You know, that's at least what they said. And uh, would you consider coming on the show or going through the process, right? So we got, you know, there's 30 or 40 groups they reach out to, but we avoided all the open casting stuff. We said no to the show twice. Why? Uh, because it was we were a month and a half into business. We, it was our infancy. We didn't want to tell 9 million people what we were doing because um, we didn't know what we were doing, but also we kind of wanted to hide it a little bit. Looking back on it, not sure why. Um, Where you're like, we're so successful, we don't need no sharks. Yeah, like, yeah we don't our, want anyone to take our, our yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> We don't need these billionaires to come take our idea. Um, but then eventually, executive producer called us and said, if you guys don't do this, you'll be making the biggest mistake of your life. How did he convince you that was true? Uh, well, I think it was kind of, it's, it's a great question. I think it was really that, you know, you didn't feel like you were talking to someone from a reality show that was just trying to use you, like maybe some other reality shows that we all know. It was really I've more like horror stories, man. Oh yeah. No, us too. You know, our contract was very one sided. Yeah. Right. Um, and, and you, you didn't want to be like, uh, the stories of the bachelor, right. Where they're like recording you here and showing you this and framing you in this light because we're two dudes from Maine. that wanted to be shown as we are post-production. Yeah. Like, <laughs> totally exactly. twist the narrative. Yeah. yeah. So, but you know, just, you know, I, I do think, and I still believe it about the show, knowing more and more about it behind the scenes today, 15 years later, like, it is a show that can provide opportunity. Like, and it's, it's also educational. Like there's literally little kids that watch it and adults and, um, it's a good show. Yeah. It's entertaining and, and it can give, it can inspire and it can provide education and opportunity. And I think that's kind of how we looked at it. It was a platform for us to share our story yeah. that we otherwise would not have had. There is a point. If you have a concept that's successful, that if you want to scale it, like you, you constantly have to have this mentality of, I got to treat my little business like a big business, but like there's the initial operating cost to get started, but then there's the additional cost from going from being a, a small business to a business that's mm-hmm. about to scale. Yeah. It's a whole, you need a, you need to build the house before you move into For it, sure. and the house is friggin' expensive. Right. So if you can go find those people who have the experience mm-hmm. doing it, and they can put you on a fast track, and they can get you the resources you need to do it right the first time, I mean. The other thing is you, you're first to market, right? So like somebody is going to see the success, the success you're having, and all they got to do is like, you didn't have a hard concept to copy, right? You know, it's not true. to 
to beat up your car. No, it's yeah. beautiful, but it's, for nothing. it's simple. You know what I'm saying? Like it's a simple, which is what makes it so beautiful is that it's scalable. Like, like Barbara said, it has yeah. legs, you know, and she was absolutely right. Cause it's, it's not a lot of moving parts. It can move easily. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think you're right. It's, it's, we, we knew that it obviously, as with most ideas, you know, it could be ripped off and we've seen it in many different ways throughout the country in the last four or five years. I mean, be it from the, the website, our colors, our fonts, our photos, our stories, it's like the ultimate compliment. Yeah, it, it is the <laughs> ultimate compliment. And you know what though? It, it's, it's, it's also the ultimate form of flattery, right? Like in the sense of go ahead. And I say that for anyone, like I, I truly like, but, but at least try and do it better or something like there's, it's amazing how many people get in their own way. Um, be it ego or service or customer reaction, you know? Um, Sounds so like just hanging some door, some, uh, yeah, some no, pictures next door. No, I just mean like it's, it's um just because you serve lobster rolls doesn't mean you do everything like yeah. it's right and just because we serve like we've always said like we we believe that we have a a movement and it's something that's meaningful and, and we care about our franchisees and it's family first and we care about our customers and we expect that service to be there on top of the food some places just say give me your money here's a lobster roll get out of here talk to you later right or whatever it is a cheeseburger that's not how we're built and I think that allows for people to come back and and, and be on board and kind of support uh, our business so two months in you. You're on Shark Tank. Mm-hmm. Had the show changed, or the show had the um, business, the the food truck changed or evolved in that two month period? No, we'd literally done about you know eighty five to hundred grand each month, and uh, we went in targeting Barbara. You know, shot her for a little more Why than Barbara? an hour because we had done our research on her too. You know, again preparation, like you got to you got to do something, right? Yeah. Some sort of work, and we found out that she had worked with a lot of food groups. We actually contacted some of those food groups. Saw how she kind of was uh, as a mentor, as a, as a business partner. She seemed like we're mother's, we're mama's boys. Like I told you, she seemed relatively motherly. What the hell does that you know mean when you're watching TV? But kind of get like I feel like this isn't a shtick for her. It's like is who she is, which it is. You know, 15 years later, we know it. Um, and we just kind of thought that she was uh, also maybe the most primed to help us out with Who where she was in her she career. Was up against? I didn't catch that. Episode. It's all good. The uh, she was with Robert Damon, Mister Wonderful, and Cuban. Oh, so like the yeah. like the all star like the crew, yeah, 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 yeah. So Hershevet gave us an offer asking for more equity, but giving us more money. Uh, I think Damon and Mister Wonderful told us they put us in a body bag, and we were greedy. Um, although they're they're some of the closest guys to us now and most helpful. Um, so it was a good uh, good experience. So when you before going into that experience, what what deal did you have in mind? Do you did you have a, a like a bot, like a bottom line you were looking for? Well, we went in saying fifteen percent for fifty five. Excuse me, five percent for fifty five thousand. We ended up at fifteen percent for fifty five thousand, which, as I say, is like you know just absolute highway robbery of Shark Tank history to Barbara now. You know, in terms of I'm thinking uh, about that. I'm like, <laughs> I would have gotten at least a million for fifteen percent. Well, it's 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 changed though. Like that was season four, right? You know, what you look at from season eight, nine, ten, or maybe even nine, ten, eleven, and beyond, like the the amount of money coming out of the sharks' pockets. Uh, and the equity is going up too, right? Like yeah. it's two hundred, three hundred, four hundred, five thousand, five hundred thousand dollar deals for equity. It's millions at times, right? So the way you know, season four when we're asking for fifty five grand because we didn't really know we're you know another truck we're going to need it for, right? And we wanted to keep equity low, but of course they want you know obviously more, right? So fifteen that's fifteen percent of profit, fifteen percent of uh yes correct of profit. Okay, cool. Um, so. When you did agree to go with Barbara, and that deal was fifteen percent um, for fifty five thousand, but it's not just the money, right? You're also getting the expertise of that shark, 
and she scaled food trucks. So like, I'm guessing that like, if this is the hero's journey, she's like your, like she's like your Gandalf, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah, I think you hit it right. It's, it's actually not the money at all. Yeah. You know, for, it's not like we needed 500 grand or a million bucks to go make something happen that we couldn't tap into some other way. Like I could have got 55 grand from someone, you know, like that's what people say. Well, why didn't you just get it from your uncle or your grandparent? Like they just name people in your family and you probably could have scrounged it up, but what, but we didn't need the money or it wasn't about the money. What those people in my family couldn't do was put you in front of 9 million people or get you on certain, uh, you know, PR of, of national shows, local shows, share your story that you're franchising and help you kind of marketing your business throughout the country. And, you know, that's one of her major kind of sweet spots and expertise that is paid for itself over and over. Um, and she's like, she's been super helpful with us in that, in that way. And it's the gift truly that like keeps on giving the shark tank platform and everything that's come from that and her own platform. It's, it, we, we would need millions of dollars to go and buy advertising on a major network or major cable network and go, Hey, this is who we are. This is what we're about. And we're franchising. And then you get such a small percent of the people that inquire that are actually not tire kickers, but that are meaningful viable candidates that could turn into franchisees. So it's like a slow, glow, slow grow, really hard process. Um, so I, I strongly believe without Shark Tank and without Barbara, it would have been a hard story to pitch to get our franchise to where it is now. We so, probably would end up with corporate trucks the whole time. Right. So in the first six years, you went from that one unit to 32 units in 15 cities with eight brick and mortars and one unit in Taiwan and mm-hmm. franchising. How did you go? Like, like, take me kind of through the evolution. Like, when 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 Barbara first came on scene, like, what was the first changes she started to make? Like, what like what did she say? Like, you're missing these opportunities. I think a big part of it was what is front facing the customer. <clears throat> What's the look, uh, the name, um, the signage, the verbiage on the truck? You know that because you know there's there's so little time to interact. I mean, you're not walking into a restaurant, right? So there's less interaction at the window. Um, so just everything from the visuals, the feel, the marketing, uh, the story and message and the word of, you know, Maine and our product and where we're from to let customers know what we're about. Um, that was a big focus. She did the same on... So distilling the message, the brand, the who are we, the right. why we are doing this. Correct. Um, I think to really kind of build, you know, consumer um, buy-in support um, because... Even just now, like today, we do we say the same thing. Like the the what you should have eaten in 2012 from us should taste the same exact as the product you get in any one of our cities today in 2023. Um, and that continuity and, and consistency is important. Um, that's kind of what she kind of started with the foundation of that one truck at the time. And then I think um, she did a lot with our online e-commerce business in that same front. But then really it was about like, okay, well, how are we going to grow this? Um, and that really came down to the franchising aspect. Okay. So, I mean, just reflecting back at the evolution, like what were the biggest, like what were the biggest challenges and hurdles you got over and how did those impact who you are and how you kind of are today, how you got to where you are today? Well, uh, one of the biggest challenges, I suppose, um, within the business was, you know, when we grew to four corporate trucks, we were both living in LA. We could touch and feel the trucks and the staff every day, right? Yeah the food, the quality, the people could oversee it. You could feel not that we were controlling by any means. We were actually quite the opposite. We wanted to create the autonomy. We loved at our previous jobs for our own staff. We wanted to show you, Hey, listen, we're not going to micromanage, but you could see it. It's your operation. It's yeah. your baby. Once we started franchising, when we flew to that first city where you go for the grand opening for three days and we have our team train 
And then you get back on the plane and you're leaving the cousin's main lobster truck in Phoenix or in Dallas or whatever. Like that was a major challenge to go, Oh my gosh, what now? Right. I mean that, yeah. When you're spread out now, like that's a whole different way of leadership and management. Correct. Yeah. So when when you were, how long did it take to go from one unit to four units? Uh, We did that within about two years, 2012 to 2014. Okay. Um, where was this $55,000 being spent? We actually didn't touch it for the first like year and a half. <clears throat> we did it. Uh, we, we ended up using it for, I think, the third truck once we started tapping into it. So, again, it really wasn't about the money uh, at the time. It was more about the opportunity with Barbara. Got it. Um, so how did she help the most in, from going from one to four beyond just the branding? Like what was the biggest impact she had early on beyond the branding? And it was, it was really like, uh, you know, I think her claim to fame is, is the franchise. It is, it Helping is. Helping get ready for franchise. Yeah. And there's so many missteps you can take in franchising, right? If you don't do the franchise, the, the FDD or the franchise agreements correctly, if you don't get the right, uh, she had all the templates already. Correct. She so had the all legal the teams yeah. or the, um, you know, you can kind of start with a boilerplate because it doesn't fit every business, but then to really uh, kind of get granular with those things to make sure they do fit our business, to make sure that you're ultimately protected, you have something really nice to present, and so you're not, you know, a laughing stock of someone who goes, okay, cool, I want to join your franchise. I got 20 Dunkin' Donuts. Tell me about yours. We're like, uh, you know, yeah, like you got yeah. to be ready, and I think that's where she could elevate us with that, and for anything we didn't know or she didn't know, she knew someone. Right. And that was connection that's, on a phone call. Huge. Yeah. And that's yeah. where we always say, like, kind of my point about preparation, we may not know it. Most of the time we didn't know it. We'd ask a million questions. But it's nice to be able to ask those questions to people that have been there, done right. that, or are really experienced in their aspect, be it literally insurances for us or HR yeah. or accounting or growth or What you're sales. saying right now is literally why I started a restaurant, restaurant yeah. stoppable network is because I don't consider myself to be the expert in all these things, but I know somebody who knows way more mm-hmm. than I do. So we can go to those people and learn collectively. Right. Um, so it's the, the power of a network is so powerful. It's, it's, it's underestimated. But um, so you, you said that if she didn't come along, you would have been Corporate only. You would have just been a corporate operation. Yeah, I think so. So what, what, she, what? how did she convince you that franchising was the way to go? Why were you so adverse to fran- franchising? It's not that I was adverse to it. I love the idea of it. I just know now how hard it is to get a litany of a, a huge volume of franchise inquiries and requests or recruits that you are then going to say that filters down to this 1% or 2% that will actually close to be a franchise. So the amount of money you need to say – hey, world, this is your country. This is my business. This is who we are. Uh, we're young and we're in our infancy, but we're franchising now. And please, you know, come look at our business. And would you like to, you know, be considered as a franchisee for this too? Like that message alone is so hard to get out to people. And it's not like we had 500 units roam in the country, right? We had four and they were all in LA. So it's not like you'd see our trucks unless you traveled to LA. Um, so the ability to basically get our face, our brand, our product and our story on today's show, Good Morning America, financial shows, you know, in network. New York, in LA, yeah. the network, the entrepreneur magazines, you know, yeah. everything that is, um, we're grateful for now, but we've got a wall of things that are really, you know, make us proud um, to be a part of. And they start spreading, you know, it goes to TMZ, it goes to CNBC, it kind of fits like all avenues. Um, and so, that just creates more eyes on your brand. Like we always say, like we go on the, uh, have been on the day show a decent amount of times. I don't think that's driving our sales at each truck. I don't think it's doing that at all. I think it's creating a little bit more awareness and recognizability for our brand where there might be someone at home that then a week later goes, oh yeah, I, I heard of that business on, on the day show yeah. with, Ke- with Hoda and you know Jenna. Like that's important. 
and Barbara gave us, you know, she, she started that whole kind of trickle in 2012 and 13, and we've kind of tried to stay ahead of the curve. You, more people that know about us, the more opportunity to maybe award franchises. Yeah, you, you started this terror, awesome terror, by the way, <laughs> with saying you have no idea how much money it's going to cost you to franchise, right? So, like, how much money does it actually cost if you're if you're going to do it right? Like, how much do you need to budget for? Like, yeah. did, how, like how, give us an idea. So just to get, just to be ready to sell an award, meaning with a franchise disclosure document or franchise agreement, uh, all the kind of buttoned up pieces you would need in your team, your infrastructure, uh, the the legalities of being able to sell. I mean, I, I would think today it's probably one hundred fifty, two hundred thousand dollars just to get set up so that you can sell. Yeah, just, right. That's just so that's a pure investment. Like, oh my god, I hope we sell something. Where's right? the majority of that one hundred fifty thousand dollars going? Uh, well, to truly like to, to legal teams that will sit there and put together your, your franchise disclosure documents, your franchise agreements. Um, for us, we also invested in a couple of people internally that would, if we had some franchisees come on that would be able to support that, you know, we always wanted to be an asset to our franchisees. And at the time we were a team of three, myself, Sabin, and, uh, you know, our best buddy, Sean Higgins, who moved out from New York and is the president of the business, you know, 11 years later. Um, so, yeah, I mean, mostly in that space, but then, um, the, I mean, the real, if I looked at the last 10 years, I, I wouldn't even know the number, but I would imagine if we didn't have Shark Tank and all the things that came after to promote the business or show our story, I mean, I would say probably millions of dollars to advertise. And then, you know, it's kind of like we were talking about earlier, what, what's, what's advertising mean now? Today, are people going to just fast forward through the commercial anyways? Right. Like, are you even going to see it? Are you spending all your money online or is it actually going on TV and like, all those millions of dollars just to let people know who you are and maybe they'll go to your website and fill an inquiry and maybe they'll be good, but more often than not, the percentages say they won't be there, you know, at the end. Yeah. So of all the the food trucks that you are a part of the the cousins today, how many are are run by, how many different franchise partners do you have? Yeah, we have about 18 franchisees, but of those 62 trucks, uh, 56 of them are franchised. 56 out of 62? <clears throat> Correct. Okay, so you guys own... We own six corporately. Six corporately? Mm-hmm. Got it. Um, one thing I am curious about, because um, that's where we are today, um, how did you know what markets to go into? Like, How were you prioritizing where right. to take your food trucks? And that's why when you asked earlier if I had something against franchising, I wanted... I love the idea of franchising. The reason being is because if you're a franchisee, then you're invested into it. You've got skin in the game. Your blood, sweat, and tears goes into your business. You are an entrepreneur just like we are. It might say Cousins Made Lobster. It's a family business. And somebody will go, oh, it's a national business. No, it's not. It, it's national in the name. But if you live in Raleigh, like our franchisees, Deb and Greg do, they're from there. They've lived there for 25 years. They're the backbone of, of that business with their two, two food trucks and their restaurant there. And the locals know them. And that's how it evolves and all that kind of you know manifests to the support and the sales of the business. So when things get hard, those franchisees' backs are against the wall, just like Jim and Sabins were in 2012 when we quit our, quit our job. When COVID hit, same thing. Who do I want going through supporting this business and making sure it works in every city? I want our franchisees because they're the ones that are living in their market. This is their business. It is their investment. We are there with them every sense of the way. They're we are supporting. Of, of course, yeah. like they're part of the community and our little cousins, Maine Lobster community too. Like. We'll, we'll work and network anyone of our franchisees, but when they put it back, like it's something really special happens. Yeah. And what that means is that something special is that we 
we, we got through COVID like really strongly, you know, and when, um, when there is growth to be had and when people want to succeed and scale and do more, it's because they can see it in their bottom lines. They can see opportunity. They can see themselves creating jobs for their very first manager of one truck, but now they got eight trucks and he's a regional manager, he or she, or they have, you know, more upside to their business to be telling their staff how they can grow. And that is really, really special. But I think at the end of the day, a franchisee is like, it's their business. They're in the game and they're going to, they're going to be there making, you know, fighting in the trenches with us to make sure that it always has successes. And when hard times come that they work through those. Whereas if I was paying a manager to be a corporate, you know, a corporate manager across the country from me, and I hope that they wake up not hung on, not hung, not hung over, right? Or that they're motivated that day to go out, like you say, unstoppable. You feeling unstoppable today? I don't know how much I'm going to trust them on paying a salary with maybe no upside in their mind. Skin in the game. Yeah. If, if, if they show up hungover and they're doing a shitty job uh, and the, the customers they serve that day don't come back, they don't I, they're still going to get their paycheck. Correct. You know? Right. But so having you, the franchisees, yeah. is, it's special. So I will say this. I have grown and evolved a lot over my almost 10 years of recording this. And I used to be very against big corporation mm. franchise. Uh, the reason for that is because I felt like it stifled uh, local commerce, local community, local creativity. Mm-hmm. And, and I like the idea of spreading the money out, you yep. know, not having these McDonald's of the world come in and pull the money locally and send it to wherever the, yep. the, the CEO of that company is. Um, I will say something about, I think that the more I've learned about the business of restaurants and business in general, like you need to create opportunity for people and for them to stick around for you. And, mm-hmm. and, and as, unless you're growing, there's not going to be any opportunity. Yep. So, th- and I, I do love this idea of giving equity to the, to your team and like letting people buy in. And that's how you find your investors. You let you provide opportunities to the people that you hired to become an investor by buying 1%, right? right? And giving equity to your people. And then that's how you attract onto yourself this talent by letting them literally treat it like they own it because they do. Then over time they can buy more points as they're increasing their own cash flow. Franchising is not too much different. It's just another way to scale. It's another, it's another legal structure to let people invest and buy in, and then you give opportunity to them through this thing that you've created. They might just be a little more ahead of, so say, uh, a server who wants sure. to become the front of house general yeah. manager who has a one percent of this one location, right? And you know, yes, uh, I guess I'd say to your your point earlier, I would probably have agreed with you um, about the idea of franchising before. I didn't even know what franchising was. I just knew that all McDonald's were the same, or they're supposed to be, right? Right. But I think we're a little different in the sense of one, our product line. But two, I just told you we have 17 franchisees, not not thousands. We have 60 units, not 6,000, right. right? So I think that what you might have been experiencing, and, and myself included, when you go to some of these massive franchises or a franchisor that has a lot of franchisees, um, if you feel like something's lost along the way, if it's just a transaction or maybe like a business model – I think that's where we're a little bit different because we are still just innately so small as, right. a, as a as a business acumen, um, as kind of our ethos, and then just by the nature of our product and the way we've grown, is it like we're not ever going to be four thousand units? Right, we're going to be a smaller franchise where all of our franchisees know each other and actually genuinely love getting together in our annual retreats and talking to each other and being part of this thing. That oh, you're doing that? I'm going to do this too, yes. and we're going to be better in all these different regions of the country, right? And there's there's competition, but it's good and it's healthy. And I think that then on the level of I walk in and I might be a national brand, but I should be having the same lobster roll. Oh, and by the way, the franchisee who is from uh, Dallas, Texas, or from Pittsburgh, or from Freehold, New Jersey, or our restaurant on Asbury Park Boardwalk, like 
they're from there and they're talking to the owners. Right. And they go, Oh, are you on Shark Tank? You know, Jim and Sabre. Okay, cool. Let's laugh and have a lobster roll, right? Like that's, but, but they're talking about it just like they are the owners of those units. For the record, I still don't want to see a bunch of like Dunkin' Donuts and McDonald's out there in the world, but I do think that I, I do want to see more franchises and more corporations, but operating from like the 20 to 100. Yeah. location <clears throat> ballpark so i still want to see the i'm still trying to level the playing field but I'm, i think that we need to have m- more f- smaller franchises and corporations yeah because that's because you can make a lot of money with 20 units well right? yeah and it's yeah and i think so there's the obviously there's an the economical upside for or financial upside for a franchisee in our business or for us as a franchisor as we grow right as they grow from one truck to 10 they're probably gonna make more money right as we grow the business will probably make more money although we've talked about new costs along the way too. But the other thing that the franchise model does allow you to do is get your product or business. Like you're saying that you might love, maybe you're not a Duncan's guy, but maybe there's these smaller businesses. You're like, well, man, if it started in Austin, Texas, how do I get it in New Hampshire? Well, it might be via the franchise model because if it's not the corporate locations, first choice may not be New Hampshire. You know what I mean? So it allows the kind of spread of lobster rolls or of other products, uh, be it, you know, food or not in another industry. And I think it allows the, the opportunity to get to other markets more quickly. It doesn't mean they need to be 5,000 units or lose that really meaningful thing that was their first couple of units. So what is the biggest challenge in scaling a franchise, You do you think? Well, I would say that, again, when we when we left those first trucks and we franchised, we got back on the plane, saving myself, like, oh my gosh. It's like, it's like give them your baby. We didn't even right. have kids This was in Arizona. <clears throat> yeah. Arizona why why was it, was we, it a person in Arizona that you thought would be a good franchise? We had a, a Phoenix franchise that opened. Um, <clears throat> and that was in 2015. Uh, no longer there. But that was the moment where you're like, again, we didn't have kids, but we're like, this is probably what it feels like if you left your baby in some city and got yeah. back on a plane. Cause it's like, it was everything we were about that you worked years for. And now you're giving it to someone else and you need to hope or believe that what you've set in place for infrastructure, training, compliance, which again, we didn't know, we didn't know. So in our infancy, like that, they uphold the integrity and reputation of your business and brand when you're gone. Right. It's the same thing you're saying about the manager. Does that manager wake up and really care? And show up, and does he care if the customer's upset? So that same thing with franchising—that's the hardest part. Was that when you give this set of keys to somebody else for your truck and your look and your feel and your product and your name and your brand, to know that they would run it like Jim and Saban did in 2012—that's the hardest part. And I think as we wrapped our heads around that, that's where we had to invest more time and money and manpower in that early on, even if royalties weren't flowing in to say we got to have a crew of compliance and training that is always there monitoring from afar and on site um, to make sure that that cousin's trucks in Dallas is the same as Pittsburgh is the same as Detroit, same as LA. Same so consistency across all these locations. Yeah. And I don't mean just food quality. I mean the person in the window, right. mean the cleanliness of the truck. Well, I, when I asked like, what the biggest challenge, I was curious if it was going to be finding the right franchisee. Get it like in the sure you can pay us yeah. the entry fee to become whatever it's called. It's called mm-hmm. a franchise what's the franchise thing? fee. Franchise fee yeah. to to join our franchise group. Our uh, I don't even know the right legal jargon to use. Honestly, when it comes to franchise, I'm still learning this whole cool. world of franchises. Yeah. But like, are you are you the right person? Do mm-hmm. you have the same core values? Are you going to treat it like we treat it? Like like really make like taking the time to get to know that person that they're a right culture fit when you when they're just trying to hand you money and get going yeah. right well you're right the the more simple answer would have been finding the right franchisee just like we say about our staff yeah. <clears throat> i took it a couple steps forward and said once you have the right franchisee 
that's the belief now that you're getting that consistency because you chose the right franchisee. So we have so much vetting and, and processes in place now where we feel really good. And a lot of it ends up being our gut, but we do have a lot of, I mean, there's people from 10 years ago, we turned down to your point that were throwing money. Like, Hey man, we're two dudes from Maine. Like glad that you have money. Like we didn't, you know, so we're not going to go sell you a truck because you have money because we know that you probably won't figure it out. And money, throwing money at a food truck doesn't solve the problem. Right. It doesn't create sales, doesn't create great service, doesn't create great bookings. You'll be closed before you open, you know. And so we we knew we didn't want that. We knew that we didn't want people with egos or that didn't fit the kind of fabric of, of what our business was. And we couldn't even always explain what it was. It's just sitting down and having a conversation with someone. This doesn't feel right. It's a feeling. Yeah. yeah. And and so that would have been detrimental. And not to say we haven't had those, but you learn from those and you kind of fine tune what you're looking for. So how many units did you open in Phoenix? Just one. one just one. Truck, yeah. So in 2015, you had six food tr- or five food trucks. Yeah, that was our very first franchise. And then from 2015 to 2018, you went to 15 cities and 32 food trucks. Mm-hmm. So you grew fast yeah. in three years. Mm-hmm. Um. We're going to take a break to thank our sponsors, and when we come back, we're going to talk about what that next three years was like. This episode is brought to you by Margin Edge. Margin Edge is a restaurant management software that helps you see your food and labor cost in real time so you can make informed decisions in the moment. Just snap a picture of your invoice, and Margin Edge will process them within 24 to 48 hours with line item detail, including handwritten adjustments. This allows you to save hours on paperwork so you can spend more time on creating great guest experiences. Margin Edge combines purchases from your invoices and sales data from your POS, which allows you to get real-time costing, get a daily controllable P&L, and send information directly into your accounting system. Margin Edge integrates with 60-plus POS systems and dozens of accounting systems. Manage everything from one central location inventory, recipes, plate costs, ordering, and bill pay. Margin Edge was created by restaurant people for restaurant people. And as a matter of fact, Margin Edge founders continue to operate restaurants to this day. Head to MarginEdge.com slash unstoppable to sign up for a free demo today. That's MarginEdge.com slash unstoppable. This episode is brought to you by Restaurant Technologies, Inc. RTI's total oil management automates your entire cooking oil process. With total oil management, you get dependable fresh bulk cooking oil delivery, filtration plus oil usage monitoring and reporting, easy oil disposal, used cooking oil pickup and recycling, and say goodbye to those messy, dangerous restaurant rendering tanks. Yuck. RTI's end-to-end cooking oil system helps you manage your used cooking oil disposal, storage, collection, and recycling conveniently, safely, and cleanly with no upfront cost. RTI's services are not limited to oil. They also provide insurance premiums and automated hood cleaning solutions plus hood filtration systems, making your hood cleaning process easy, automatic, and worry-free. In addition to all this, Restaurant Technologies, Inc. can help you reduce your carbon footprint, which we all know is becoming increasingly more important to the consumer restaurant technologies inc is always on so you don't have to be to learn more head to rti-inc.com and let them know restaurant unstoppable podcast sent you their way we are back and we just got to the point in your timeline your story where you have your first franchisee in phoenix uh that two units you said and then from there you go from six units to 32 units in three years. 
across 15 cities. Mm-hmm. So well, like, where were you? Like, what was like the strategy? Take us to that point where you're just like, okay, let's go. Yeah. Um, we were in an office much like this, actually, uh, in Los Angeles, myself, my cousin, and Sean Higgins, our president. And we had a social media uh, woman at the time uh, who'd run like all of our accounts for our new franchisees coming on board and ourselves. So four of us. And I think between saving myself and Sean, what we knew I don't want to say we unlocked, but what we realized is that we were dealing with people. Like our franchisees were people. They were humans. Um, and they were part of our family now. And it wasn't so much that they worked for us. We worked for them. And our hours got long. And we knew that we'd had to figure everything out operationally to make sure that when they're opening, we're going to be ready to rock with everything and anything they want. Um, and there's a huge learning curve there to say, well, we have this or we don't have that, right? But once we didn't have something or we didn't know something, we made sure that it made its way into our, our ops manual. It made its way into something that's a deliverable for them to make them better. Yeah. That we would always pick up a phone call. And that they were on the ride, you know, they were starting their journey with us. They were an early adopter uh, of, you know, an OG, as we call them, my cousin's main lobster, one of those first uh, franchisees that signed on. And we needed to make sure that, Nothing was falling through the cracks. And I think truly it was just the three really me saving Sean saying, okay, well, this is the focus and this has got to work. And we need to make sure that we are armed with everything and anything to make sure these guys are successful, right. these men and women. I feel like it's like anything else. You just start in the 1% better every day. Yeah. And like when you first started, you didn't have a register. Yeah, I'm sure by day two, you had a register, <laughs> yeah. you know? Yeah. So like yeah. when you hit these walls, you go, what happened there? Yeah. And how do we fix it so right. it doesn't happen again? And then you just keep, then you document it. You document it and like you just you just fill the holes. Yeah. Well, our ops manual that started with like, you know, 28 pages is now like, you know, it's like three phone books thick. If this, then that. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) But you're right. Like it's not rocket science. It's documenting a lot of documenting and not like in a negative or bad way being like, boom, this happened. Here's a solution. Right. When this happens, here's what we do. Um, And then it was having the foresight, I think, to say, okay, well, we have franchisees that have signed on and they're ready to open in three, four, five, six months, right? That growth you saw in those three years. We need to make sure that it's not just Jim Saban and Sean and our social media woman in the office, right? It it needed to be people. You don't need to go overspend on staffing and payroll, but you need to make sure that you have a team that is ready to deliver on what we said. We want to be an asset to the franchisees still to this day we want to make sure that they're leaning on us calling us and that we are doing the same and we're outworking them when they're ready to kind of tango you know and that's what i think that we did we found some key pieces and then you find that those key pieces can support the infrastructure or the franchisee numbers that we have and then as they grow we need more key pieces and then it eventually is the point where you got to hire those uh you know key people on your team before the growth, like while you're anticipating some future yeah. growth to make sure that they have time to train, onboard, learn all of their stuff, be part of our kind of culture and fabric and fit in seamlessly with our relations with the franchisees. Got it. So when you were growing that first, uh, or I should say from 2015 to 2018, when you went from that massive growth in a short period of time, um, were you focused on recruiting franchisees or were you focused on markets? It's a good question. Uh, you know, we, we used to think that Cousins Main Lobster could work anywhere. So therefore, and we still do think that, but we didn't we didn't target a specific geographical area, right? It's kind of when it looks when you look at a map, like where we are and how we ended up there. We were targeting people. 
Yeah. Again, we wanted the best people that fit our business that were going to uphold the reputation and, and run a successful business and make make us proud to have our name in that city and make them proud to have our name on their back. Um, so we'd look at those people. So just because that person is from uh, Pittsburgh and it rains there, and it's, it can be a wintry mix and it can be cold and it's less disposable income than maybe. They still want lobster. They still want lobster. Yeah. And if that person is a person we believe in, then they'll find a way to make it work. And they did. And that was one of our biggest things, you know, because we started out west. We hit Texas. We hit Phoenix. Warm weather. What was going to happen when we go to Boston, New York, right. Connecticut? I was about that. Yeah, well, so are we. Those markets. Um, we're about, uh, I want to say 2018. Those markets in New York, uh, Boston was like 2020, 2019. Uh, no, 2020, right during COVID. Um, so, and, and they perform so well. And, and all markets for different reasons. Obviously, the driving force behind this are the entrepreneurs, are the franchisees, that they are the right people, the right fit. But it just goes to show, it's like, just because you have a lobster, it doesn't mean you need it in sunny LA at 75 degree weather. Like, it can be in the snow in a peacoat here in Boston. Um, it could be in, in the rain in, in Philly, um, you know, in, in the, in the raw bitterness of the cold winters. Um, and that's, and that's in, in totally different by each neighborhood and market and demographics that we go to. Well, here's the thing too. You're also operating food trucks, which gen- generally have better operating, like, I don't know, uh, conditions, n- not in the Northeast. Like mm-hmm. you can have a food truck in LA 12 months out of the year. Yep. No problem. Can't do that in New Hampshire. You can't do that in Boston, right? You can't, we do. Yeah, but I mean, it's hard though, right? So oh, it's, it's yeah, it's hard. But but again, I think those are one of the things we learned because we probably were thinking the same thing you did. Oh man, it's going to be hard in Boston. It's going to be hard in New York. Like, what do you do when it snows three feet in New York City and you can't even walk? Never mind, try to stick a food truck on a curb, right? right? Um, but no, Boston specifically. I mean, their two trucks are as high in AUVs as anyone throughout wow. the country. So what what does that mean? Do they hit it more in in spring, summer, fall? Like, you know, some seasonal businesses here that just do the majority of sales there. But they stay strong in the winter because, again, I think you look at the market like I grew up being cool outside with a a peacoat or a sweater or, you know, a sweatshirt and a hoodie and going out in the cold. In L.A., when I was there at 75 and, like, sprinkling, people would have, like, a sweater on and be like, oh, my God, it's getting cold. Oh, my God. I was, you know? I was there like, last week, and it was, like, 50 degrees, and people are losing their yeah, mind. I'm yeah, like, yeah. this is great. And I'm not – yeah, and I'm not, taking a, I'm not taking a shot at them. I'm just saying that's a real thing. They oftentimes yeah, relativity won't, won't go out if yeah. it's raining now, sprinkling. So maybe the sales aren't as strong there then. But it's – uh. So we had a lot of learning curves like that, and I just think there is a different by each market and by, you know, what people are the expectation of kind of what going out to get food is like. So how were you recruiting these franchisees? Were you was that was that where the majority of your marketing when you talk about marketing is it marketing your franchise to franchisees? Yeah, and and to be perfectly frank, like we weren't spending dollars on it because we didn't know where your best dollar spent was. Like we've tried some things here and there. We did some work with Facebook, some work with some groups that, you know, kind of speak the game of selling you franchises. There's a lot of brokers out there, but they, they kind of sometimes don't bring you the best. Um, but we really were relying on what we were doing with Barbara and what we were working on with ourselves, which was what I referenced earlier about today's show, Good Morning America, finance shows, getting Just entrepreneur, getting, getting, getting blogs. Yeah. Did Barbara you know, reach out to me? Who was behind that? <laughs> I, don't, I actually don't Am know. Am I on Barbara's <laughs> radar right now? That would be awesome. Barbara, are you listening? Yeah. Um, 
So I mean that's really what we've done. We've kind of we've kind of played the the, the, the pe- no no I, I actually genuinely don't know. I, I'll call her after this. We uh we we just played the the the, the PR game to say we just want to keep sharing our story because we felt like we always had a hook or a story or something new, be it a city or a product or a, a book or a TV show or something that we could share, and that kind of keeps you in the spotlight, not for ego's sake, not for anything, but sharing. We're Cousins Maine Lobster. This is who we are. This is where our units are. And maybe there's going to be a unit near you. And that could oftentimes, you know, elicit uh, new inquiries. Right. So you, it looks like you slowed down on the brick and mortars. It looks like you, you put a lot of energy into that. got eight locations. I know you had one international. Do you still have that Taiwan location? No, we do not. That closed during COVID. Okay. The story behind the brick and mortar is actually pretty simple. We started right before... Two years before COVID, so it was still years after the truck, right? So it hasn't, you know, hadn't been perfected like the trucks have, you know, with eleven years now. But the real thing with the brick and mortars is that we originally did this to say, hey, if you want to diversify your portfolio, you can have a truck or multiple trucks, and say, I want to do a restaurant here. We also knew that we've what we've seen now that we're going to start at uh, someday getting the profile of franchisees who just want their four walls, right? They have Dunkins or Wendy's or, you know. Valvoline or whatever, and they they operate in the retail space, and so they want a restaurant, they want to give an address, um, and they don't want to do the truck business. But what was interesting is that as a younger franchisor, meaning myself and Sabin, when you have a franchisee who's been successful with a food truck for one or two years, and then says, "Hey, I think I have an A plus location that we should do a restaurant right here in Nashville or name the city," we had that kind of trust and belief to say, "Okay, well." Yeah, let's go down this road. It wasn't with the exact right steps of the real estate groups and the real data and information to say this is what validates this being an A plus location that's going to derive or that's going to produce X amount of sales. It's going to make the franchisee happy. So what happened is you, you, we used locations for those first four or five restaurants that just would not have been restaurants that we choose today. It was more of conversation with our trust and our relationship with the franchisee, which is a blessing and a curse because we have that trust, but also neither of us had the real data and information to validate that being the right choice for a physical location. Got it. I mean, my first gut reaction to having a lobster concept like yours in a physical brick and mortar is that the overhead is so low because you're really not cooking. Like the food is being, like the meat's being, your primary like profit generator is being sent to you cook. So you're kind of just putting it together, right? So you don't need a hood, yep. I would imagine. Well, we do have a hood because, because we, of the, bisque. The, the well, actually the buttering of just even the buns or the oh, quesadillas really? and tacos. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That'd be saying, nice if we didn't have a hood. It would save some money. Yeah, Cause like, <laughs> and like you just don't need a lot of space. So yeah. you have, you can do high volume and you have low rent cause you don't necessarily need the, the, uh, the huge facility to, to, to execute what you're doing. Again, the power of focusing all of your energy on one thing is a, a small footprint. Yeah. Right? So I was just kind of curious as to why. No, yeah. I mean, listen, the one we've done right, which is kind of our flagship at this point, um, and the most recent restaurant opened a year and a half ago in Asbury Park in New, Ham- in New Hampshire, in New Jersey, um, which bangs it out. It's a great location right on the boardwalk, picturesque, beautiful, has the bell curve, you know, with the seasons, like a lot of Oceanside towns. But that one, that one hustles and it's great, and we did things correctly there. You know, we're opening uh, one in uh, San Francisco as well, right on the water. Um, so, what what are the correct things to do that that you've learned that are correct versus what isn't? Yeah. Correct? So we've we've made sure that this one is really data driven with 
analytics, you know, your heat maps, your uh, geographies, your population density, um, your income levels, your tourism versus locals, uh, your street traffic, your parking, like a lot, a lot of things that is above my pay grade when it comes to these right. groups that are going to make you feel really confident about the location. So I know that I'm not going to have you share those numbers because they're relative to yeah. the concept. Yeah. It doesn't make sense. So yeah. your numbers aren't going to work for every concept, yeah. but where yeah. did you go to figure out how to do this? Right. So we, uh, I mean, again, it was kind of like saying, hey, this wasn't working. We didn't make the right steps. So then I just made a lot of calls to uh, ultimately some friends that I went to Exeter with ah. um, that were in uh, some real estate space and they'd pass you on to someone else and someone else. And Barbara obviously helped us with some groups. Um, and now we have, uh, you know, some development in-house that we've been doing Um with a woman that we had hired who was previously at the Wendy's organization for 14 years and has a lot of experience in the space. Are there any tools, resources, companies that you outsource to help guide you that you can kind of make us aware of? Maybe people I could get on the show in the future to go deeper into the subject. Yeah, there there are – well, we're kind of in the middle of a few different groups, but there are are real estate groups, brokers, right, Um, that – you need to know where, where kind of they're, they're on board with you and that they specialize in markets you're looking at. But then even more specifically, there are those analytical groups that provide the information of the maps, the heat maps, the population density, even some mobile traffic that can help you understand. <clears throat> to your point, it doesn't, it's not one size fits all, but it's like, hey, well, what about the seafood concepts around here? Or what about, you know, the other industries? Is and there see- a hole in the market? Yeah, correct. Yeah. yeah. And so like it's really taking a lot of that data and then saying, and again, even that's not bulletproof. You Then you got to mix it with feet on the ground of saying there's an art, there's a science, or there's you know data involved here, and then there's what your eyes see. Um, so a lot of that is what we're doing too locally at those at those levels to say it's just like the gut check with a fran- awarding a franchisee. Everything looks good on paper maybe with this location, but something either seems really right or something seems off with it right. when you get there. So. The 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 last kind of like pin in the, like the in our timeline like our mark on the timeline is 2018 again 15 cities 32 locations today I keep on forgetting the, the current numbers 62 62 total units uh, 62 uh, trucks and eight restaurants 62 total trucks eight restaurants so you kind of put the the hold on brick and mortar mm-hmm. um, locations and how many cities did you say 40 47 yep. so. Doubled in the past, basically, six years during a pandemic, too. So had there been any major evolutionary? Like, what was the biggest challenge for you over the most recent six years? Um, you know what it was is, well, a couple of things. One, COVID was a, was potentially a big uh, one for everybody in the world, um, of course, from a bunch of different reasons. But on the business side, we were wondering if, you know, sales were going to go way down and if we'd even have a business anymore. What we found was that the food truck, uh, the mobility, in fact, just by the nature of it, it was outside. People could come stand, never mind six feet, stand 600 feet from each other if you wanted to. Um, There were no touch points. Um, you weren't as restricted. Like there was the, all the restrictions in the inside. Like you can't go like so many right, like volumes. Right. We had no restrictions. Yeah. Like, right. Cause we were serving outside. Yeah. Um, so that really went well. So we literally changed our marketing scheme instead of saying, Hey, we're going to this business park or we're going where people used to be. We found vacant places. We found retail joints that were shut down. We found dirt parking lots in Vegas. Yeah, come come sit and sit in your car, sit at a picnic table, stand outside, stand away from people. Um, We also developed and launched a mobile app. So think of Starbucks mobile app, pre-order app. That's what we have. It was ready to launch probably five months 
after COVID, but we expedited it because of COVID happening. And it just, it made things go, you know, wild because people could do everything without touching anything on the truck or an iPad or anything. And it was all on their phone. It made orders even more specific and more So would the delivery come to wherever the truck was? And you just change your No, this is just, I mean, like, you could be sitting in your car or driving to us, put your order in on your phone, and it's ready out the back door when you get there. So even if there was a, a group of people milling around, you know, you can come and go pretty just, quick. Yeah, Hold zip your in, zip out. Yeah. <laughs> so that was yeah right. Um, we also evolved in the space of digital. You know, we we now have eighty five inch TVs on all of our newer trucks that really are showing even more of a story from Maine. Before we get into the yeah, TVs yeah, and the yeah. digital, when talking about apps, so I used to kind of play this game. I was like, why? There was this argument going back maybe I don't know eight six years ago. Like, do you really need? an app or is having a robust website that allows people to order from your website. Mm-hmm. Is that enough? I'm, I'm, I'm starting to see the, the relevancy of an app now that there's so many habits being associated with just the apps are getting so good that it's getting to the point where you can just open the app and like within like the first tap of the app to like checking out, it's like three or four yeah. taps and it's habitual. So like, and there's machine learning. So it knows you and what you want and like the store you're going to. So it does save a lot of, it doesn't. There's a lot less resistance. I think is the, the word. I'm well, yeah, about. you're right, but also think it's even harder for a food truck because, like, we could be at a lunch from eleven to two, and we can't just put on our on our website eleven to two on the app eleven to two. We've got to have like actual the tech of the pin speaking to the truck to know that if we close early because the event kicks us out, or if we go a little bit later because there's a line of people and we're there till two thirty. They're actually there till two thirty, and people know that. And then it's got to show and follow your truck to where it goes to dinner. And it can't just be that. And oftentimes we'll change locations because something happens, right? This is whatever. There was an event that canceled, so we found a new event. So it's not like you can just stick in the website calendar. It's got to be like up to date to the minute to show people where it are, where, and specifically where it is within a massive parking lot or a music venue or whatever it may be. So that alone is worth it for us because it's showing you where your truck is physically to the pin and then you can order from there. I could see you being a good candidate to create a custom app. Like did you go to a developer and yeah. create your own app? Yeah. Yeah. Can Correct. you share who you went to, the company that did the work with you in case we're in the same market or like we're not in the same market. Not the same market they're not like, <laughs> I don't think sometimes it's not one like you're a perfect yeah. example of not one size fits all. Yeah. Right. Like there's tools out there like Olo or Chow yep. Now yep. or owner.com yep. uh, that have like we like, spoke to Olo. Yeah, I but was, they couldn't figure out the truck thing. Exactly. Yeah. So like that's a perfect. Right. I know BevDev or like there's an, a company that reached out to me recently that like they do custom. They they work with like custom developer. Like if your unique concept doesn't mm. fit nicely into one of these already existing yeah. like frameworks, right? Yeah. Bari Vev is that is that doesn't ring a bell to me. Also, I don't do this anymore. It's uh, Jameson and our team that does all the tech. Okay. It's well above my head. But the but I remember the group. Um, I actually don't even know the name of the group right now off the top of my head. Is the but they're across seas, um, and they've been pretty. Um, they've adapted and and been pretty flexible with us because I think they've seen that upside. And a lot of those other groups, to your point in the first conversations, like oh no, we can figure it out. We're going to be flexible, you know. But then you go down the rabbit hole a little bit and. Matter of fact, it doesn't work with food trucks. So um, there's a lot of work and kind of nuance and time that's gone into that. I'm trying to find the name because there's this company that reached out to me, um, and I know they worked with Jess Salads, and that was mentioned during the Jess Salads episode. 
anyway, it's not that important. Yeah. But really what I'm trying to do with this question is help good people connect with good people. Yeah. So like if you need something developed, were you happy right. with the service and would you recommend them? Yeah. Okay. And I actually have to get that from Jameson, the, the group, because it's right now I'm, I'm blanking on it. But to be to answer your question about am I happy with them, in the long term, yes. But I think there's definitely growing pains in the beginning because you know it might be a smaller on taking for them. But it's really important to us. So oftentimes you have conflicts there saying, well, hey, we want you to develop these things. And they're like, well, I want you to be bigger, you know, be doing more volume. And eventually we kind of all get there together. Um, so it's that was a, a kind of a growing pain that's been really, really good in the last few years. Got it. Um, so let me, let me ask you this. Like over the past six years, from like the, the additional growth, the new – I mean the, the world we're living in is changing, um, you know uh, – as you scale as an organization, you have different pain points as you scale. Like, what do you want to talk about as far as things that you think you should talk to with the time we have left? Yeah, well, I think, you know, for us, it's, um, I think we've done the business for the right reason from, from day one, right? It was a passion project. It was recreating our childhood. Um, and we were going to have one food truck and keep our jobs. And we stumbled upon cash that night that's turned into, growth in the business from our corporate units and then franchising came and we learned another thing and we developed that and fine tuned it and honed it in. And now that has been growing and taking off. Um, and I guess my point with that is saying like, I guess uh, whether it's lesson or thought is like, I'd always try and do business. It sounds so cheesy, but like to do business the right way and for the right reason, because I feel like that's when it comes back to you. You know, I think there's, we've never chased money be it franchise fees or people that could have afforded trucks but might might have buried them, you know, or might have been bad for the franchisee around them or not upheld the quality of the brand. But I think for us, we've just kind of done things methodically in the right way. And, and, and there's been some decent growth, to your point, but we've chosen the right people. And when we haven't, we've taken it off the chin and said, okay, well, we got to fix this and make it right to keep the culture and the fabric, that feeling that everyone's excited about the right way. And we've done it from the service side and from the food side. So I just think that, if you have the opportunity to do the thing the right way and if you ever have success or you you feel like you're on cloud nine, you're not. You'll be knocked down again. Yeah. So hold to those laurels and those standards and those ethics of, of continuing to do it the right way because that's what I think kind of gives back. Um, and the other thing for us is that because we kind of started with no, literally no expectation, um, we took the leap and we knew we had to make it work to, to create a little living for ourselves. But that's the excitement still 11 years later. People kind of ask, well, why are you still doing it? You know, like what, you know, what, what's next or what are you going to like? No, this is, this is what's next. Like yeah. our next thing is more cities with the trucks, more growth in the restaurant that we kind of stumbled on in the beginning. You know, our e-commerce business where we ship out of Maine nationwide is a huge business, it's smaller for us, but it's got to grow. Um, so those are the things that are the excitement that comes with that. Isn't just saying, Oh, cousins, Maine lobsters opening this city. Like that's humbling. But it's knowing that because of these cousins that are opening up, we're creating more jobs from our corporate staff and we're creating more promotions and raises and whatever it may be because we're growing and we try to give back to our team and grow our team. Be like, wow, this is special and it's cool and it's happening. This person is great and they're adding. They're, they have a division in the business now that we never had a year ago because we got you know large enough where it can support a marketing person or whomever. And that's fun because you, you, you create some – I don't want to say change. You create some opportunity for people yeah. and ourselves and our franchisees. And that's been one of our biggest growth modes is internal growth of the franchisees. You know, the current franchisees we have say, I want a new market. I want another unit. I want a restaurant. 
that means they're healthy in their bottom lines. They like the business. They like us. Like it's it's uh, kind of harmonious and working. Yeah, if you can give more relation or more opportunity to fewer relationships, I think that's impact. Mm-hmm. You know, and and when yeah, like like why. As soon as you start adding more relationships, we can only handle so many relationships as a human. So why give that relationship to another or that opportunity to a new relationship? That's just one more relationship you have to manage. Why not give that opportunity to somebody who's already within the four walls or within the organization? I think that's literally that's that's literally depth. You know, that's putting your energy into fewer people going deeper with them, providing more opportunity and having an impact. Right. Well, when this probably airs, we literally just yesterday, we just or excuse me, on Friday, we just uh, awarded a new deal with a current franchisee for a multi unit uh, setup. And I can't announce it now because I don't know when this will. But like, you know, Shortly after, it's a new market and it's it's big growth for them, and that's exciting. Yeah, like it's cool because you know it's like it's. I remember saying to my wife, you know, when we were we were dating, right? She's like, are we ever gonna? Because I just work, work, work in 2012, 13, 14. You know, we're starting. You know, we didn't really do much in terms of like going out for dates. Sometimes I didn't see each other all the time, and I'd be like, you know, but we, I got to get from one truck to two, and then we, oh, we got to get from two to three, right? For <clears throat> financial reasons to go do things. But also to have a little bit of freedom where you feel like, okay, I can take like one day a month and go out to dinner with you and like turn the phone off. Um, you see that same thing happening with franchisees when they like go from one truck to two to three and then they have four or five and then all of a sudden it's a new market and then they have these regional managers popping up and they have – then they're elevating their own game to say, okay, well now my I get this big picture. Where am I growing? Where am I going? How am I executing? And yet there are people that might have started with their day one truck manager – is now running the the all operation. I love that man. Special. So when I first started this conversation with you, I was I was sitting on this question, thinking to myself, you know, I, I don't think opening a food truck or starting a food t- truck in twenty twenty four is the same as it was in twenty twelve. I think the, the the landscape of food trucks has changed a lot. The regulations have been much have come down a lot, which I'm sure you've experienced in your existence as a food truck operator. And it's a much more comp- like a complex um, or uh, what's the word? Complicated. Or more competition. Wow, I'm mm-hmm. really struggling. There's way more competition for food tr- with food trucks, say too. So the the curbsides are going away, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think the other variable too is that food trucks logistically are not easy. If you have just a couple food trucks and you're operating out of commissary, mm-hmm. like knowing what you know today, you said you'd still go the food truck route. Why do you think food trucks are right for you, and do you think they're right for everybody? Uh, no, I don't think they're right for everybody. Um, but the reason that I would do it, and when I say I, I mean we, Cousins, Main Lobster, and franchisees we find, is because, one, we've proven it for 12 years now. We know what we're doing. We've mastered it. Um, the truck itself, like, yeah, you're right. There are complications with the truck that I think we've minimized in a lot of ways because we've seen 12 years of what can go wrong. So how do we fix that on the build originally to where it's not happening uh, nearly as much? But really because we're driving like crazy sales out of these food trucks. Like the AUVs are, are very high. Uh, we're above 1.4 million. Um, those compete with some of some very strong restaurants that are moving a much lower ticket, um, you know, and, and are probably satisfying a more uh, more customers in terms of who will eat their food. Um, but when you look at it, the operation being sm- small food truck, two or three people inside. So I think every job is hard. So maybe it's hard with the complexities of the truck or booking the truck or the commissary, but it's proven in the way that it's it's doing sales and can have a nice bottom line for franchisees. And once you see that, you can get your money back. You know what I mean? Like your investment, you can feel your investment coming back to you. And if you go, hey, man, I want to do another one. 
because I want to double my sales or triple my sales, you can get that baby on the road in three or four months. And that's the difference between building out a restaurant. So I think economically it's, it's been a pretty nice setup. Um, but then that's why we're having the restaurants as well to diversify your own portfolio within CML. Are all the food trucks exactly the same? Are you working with the same manufacturer? Yep. Yep. Now given the one from four years ago is different than the one from four days ago right? because we've made upgrades along the way, but constantly improving. (laughs) But I mean, it's, you know, for the most part, the last few years, they've been 90% the same, but there's, there's been some pretty, that's a great point that I didn't take into consideration. You have it so dialed in that like when you get that, that new franchisee or if that franchisee says we have bandwidth for a new food truck, pull the trigger four months later, they're in business. Like you don't have to go site location. You don't have to build out like, you have literally an assembly line someplace where they're right. just cranking these things out. Right. So you. if you're so if your hardest thing on the truck is that oh this county or this brewery doesn't let you in because they don't want a food truck on site or they don't you know have they have a restriction against that. Well, it's that or it could take you a year to two years to build a restaurant in certain places for X Y and Z reasons. Then you got to make sure it's right. So that's not me saying I don't believe in the restaurants because I do. We have proof in the pudding now. Um, it's just saying that the trucks are quick and easy uh, in the sense of getting up and on the road. And at the true sense of, to me, what an entrepreneur is, it's just a sexy word for working hard. Yeah. The truck is great. It's a, it's a low cost to get in, still relatively, right? It's costing about 200, I don't know, 240, 250 now to get for a food truck. Yeah, the cost um, is going crazy. But you can go, I mean, you don't need to be a chef trained, back of the house, 10 years experience. You know, you can be a young kid out of college you could be anyone we have stay-at-home moms or former lawyers or former doctors former insurance people that are just sitting there going hey we're gonna listen and be trained our way we're gonna hop on a truck for lower cost investment and we're gonna go bang out as many places we can in our market where we grew up and live and and we know this 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 community and they do sales we're going to start to wrap it up. I really love this conversation, man. I want to respect I could probably do another hour with you, to be honest, but I want to respect your <laughs> Tell time. my wife. That's fine. I'll call her. Yeah. <laughs> She's got tubby time for the kids. <laughs> so one question I want to start asking all my guests is what, like, essentially what makes you unstoppable? What is one thing that you do in the four walls of your franchise locations that, like, I could put a camera on and, like, document this is what we do that's unstoppable? I guess if I had to say one thing, I'd say that inside our four walls, I'd say that we're just tenacious, um, that we won't be beat. And that means for competition, but it also means for our franchisees, we're here to support and be an asset to them every day to make them better and make them successful. When they're having a hard time, figure it out, get through it. Um, so our team, I think, is committed to being tenacious to un- until something's wrong is better or until something right is you know through the moon. That's kind of what I think we bring to the table to make sure we're always supporting and making everyone and ourselves better. I love that. Uh, the mission statement of Restaurant Unstoppable, I always try to echo it as much as possible, is to change the world through inspiring, empowering, and changing the restaurant industry. So on that note, I believe that if we're going to ex- execute this mission, it's going to start with one owner at a time, transforming one owner at a time. Mm-hmm. So how, how have you personally transformed? Who's the gym today versus the gym back in 2012 when you were first getting started? Yeah, well, um, it's a good question because there's a couple different uh, dimensions of that. In my opinion, there's <laughs> there's the there's the Jim who knew what I wanted as a customer, which, like I told you, is uh, it's a got to be a ten for food, and you've got to treat me like a 
human being, right? Like what I was said, treated like our mothers, right? Because my mom would be frazzled as, how's a credit card machine? And what's in the Connecticut role? So like, be sweet, be nice, be kind. Like that's lost in a lot of people, right? So that's why I said earlier, like it's just some of the simple things don't get done. So, uh, but the, but the business side of things for me, I think is, I probably was maybe a little more, um, steadfast and not steadfast in ways, but a little bit more, um, um, just kind of like the, the business mind of maybe what I got from medical device sales and previous generations, but you know, before us of like, this is the way it's gotta be. It's black or white and you know, uh, less leniencies or forgivenesses. But now I think if you look at the last four or five years, the way the, the world is going, times have changed. And I think that what you need and what we've learned is that you need a happy team and you need a happy staff. And that's really, really hard to accomplish. And I think that comes from leadership. So it'll be that me and Saban or Sean and our team to make sure that everyone is happy and feeling part of it. Um, and they'll work their faces off for you if they have that good culture and you have the right people. And I think the same is true for franchisees. When our franchisees had had hard times with staffing or payroll and they couldn't go out with the truck because they didn't have people to work, it wasn't about staffing or payroll and it wasn't about their hourly pay. It's usually about the owners. And do you like who you're working for? And I think that's like a real big takeaway for me that I've learned in these last probably four or five years is that so much today is, you know, do you like who you're working for? It's not about people chasing a dollar more an hour or $2 more an hour or financial gain. It's much about the culture, the, the feel, the fit. Um, that's what motivates them to work and care and kind of bleed the business. At the end of the day, we're, we're humans, you know, and we are tribal and we need <laughs> other people to survive. Yeah. And um, money is great, but at a certain point, you will never get enough of it to be yeah. like, but relationships we know make people happy. It's powerful. Um, great. This, so this is the last question before we have you call somebody out. But if you got the news, you'd be leaving this world tomorrow. All the memories of you, your work, and your restaurants would be lost with your departure. With the exception of three pieces of wisdom that you could leave behind for the good of humanity and your legacy, what would those three pieces of wisdom be? Well, I would say have humility. One. Yep. I would say be fearless. Two. And I would say uh, never stop learning. Three. This has been a lot of fun, Jim. Who do you respect and admire? Like if if I got them on the show to do what you did for us today, that's an episode you'd absolutely be tuning into. Yeah. Well, uh, the person that comes into mind who's been a friend of ours for a long time and a huge impact on our business is Kat Cole. Um, she is Focus Brands. Focus Brands. Yeah. Well, formerly she is now uh, I think President CEO at uh, AG One. Yes. But was uh, you know her story starts as a uh, that's well, Athletic Greens, right? Athletic Greens. Yeah. yeah. But she you know her whole real claim is starting as a she's as on a my Hooters waitress. Um, oh really? Yeah, because that's kind of how her when she was I think seventeen and eighteen how she got her start in the restaurant industry and uh, in the space and how she quickly rose in the Hooters ranks. Um, you know, in the, in the management side and executive side and just a wealth of knowledge. And, uh, it's funny cause you know, in our early years, we would be on the phone with her too much. She'd be like, guys, just, you know, not just listen to me, but like, we've talked about this before. This is the way you, you know, this is the way you do it. You gotta like, it's kind of that growth, that little kind of creating that muscle, that franchise muscle. And she helped us develop that muscle a lot. Um, and just a wealth of knowledge. Everyone here would sit there with their jaws open, listening to her. Um, 
but just and a wonderful human being. Great. Actually, family, have so. her phone number, Robert St. John. Thank yep. you. I don't know if you know who that is. He he called her out. He connected me with her. Okay. Uh, so she is absolutely on my uh, radar, and I'm sitting on it because I haven't been to Atlanta to yeah, yeah. Yep. to to get her on recently. Um, but I. But, I'm coming at you from yeah, all angles. I'm happy to help you. I'd yeah. love to get her yeah, on the yeah, show. Yeah, she sounds yeah. like and this is why I'm I'm letting the, my guests steer the ship because yeah. there's patterns for sure. You know, like the people who are respected and are doing amazing things who make time for other people. Those are the people that get recommended on the show, and I'm really excited for this new direction we're going in to like take the podcast full time on the road. Yeah, but, well, congrats to you, Dave. It's been awesome. Yeah, uh, and if we enjoyed today's conversation and uh, we're open to the idea of franchising, we're looking for opportunities. What's the best way to get in touch with you for? future opportunity yeah cousinsmainlobster.com um and there's just a franchise request tab at the top if that's what you're referring to um and then uh, literally that's how it all starts that inquiry turns into an email to our team and we reach right back out and schedule a call social handles you want to put out there at cm lobster uh instagram uh same for facebook you know corporate but we have uh facebook candles all throughout the country in every city but uh, at cm lobster is uh instagram Got it. And uh, this is episode 1042. Head over to restaurantstoppable.com slash 1042. We'll have a summary of today's discussion as well as any links to tools and services recommended and how to connect with the CM Lobster Dudes. Um, This has been so much fun, Jim. Thank you so much. There is no questioning. You are unstoppable. There's another episode wrapped up here at Restaurant Unstoppable. Special thanks to our guest today, Jim Salikas, for coming on and being an inspiration. Awesome stuff out of today's conversation. And if you're enjoying this podcast and you want more content just like this, man, we need your support. And it's going to be worth supporting because we're going to be doing some amazing things in 2024. So the goal has always been to be an on-site, in-person podcast. And we've been doing that consecutively over the past year and a half to two years. But going forward, I really want to take it to the next level. I am going to be sacrificing myself to the road gods and living on the road full time, combining my at home routines with my on road routines and really just trying to create mobile habits where I'm not having to come and go and travel so much where I can just be and exist on the road. And uh, my solution, I think, is going to be to either have a tow behind trailer RV or a mobile home. And um, I can't wait. But what this is going to allow us to do is to really get into these communities and to let my podcast be my research and to let this thing happen organically through word of mouth. And I, I really just want to create something that's honest and holistic and transparent. And I feel like the only way to do that is to literally sacrifice myself to the road gods and just let my content, let my, my interviews be my research and let it happen organically. And the only way I know how to do that while trying to crank out two episodes a week and get ahead is to just live on the road. So we need your support like none other. Uh, one of the ways we're trying to also add value beyond taking this journalistic approach is we're, we hired a coach, a consultant to help us reconfigure and re uh, organize Restaurant Unstoppable Network. There's going to be different tiers now, but in the first tier, I can tell you this. Our goal is to create a content library. So one of the biggest challenges we've had, had here at Restaurant Unstoppable is that it's so hard to 
listen intentionally to our content because over the past 10 years, I have over a thousand episodes. So if you're new to the show, you don't even know where to start and it's so overwhelming. So beginning in the new year, we're going to have buckets. We're going to have four buckets. They're going to be system and process in one bucket, people and culture in another bucket, marketing in another bucket. And I think the fourth bucket is going to be the human element, human factors, because because behind every great restaurant is a great person and you will never be a successful restaurateur until you master yourself. So we're going to have playlists and organized content within these buckets. So you can be so intentional with your listening instead of just having to, you know, kind of hope that you hit a good episode today. So I'm super excited for that. Um, So right now, if you head over to restaurantunstoppablenetwork.com and you sign up, we are honoring the $29.99 a month rate. Uh, but beginning in the new year, there's going to be a new rate. So if you want to get into the network and you want to have that honored lower rate, get in before the end of the year. Also, when you sign up for the network, we're going to send you, um, if you sign up for the network and you opt in for the annual option, which is $300 for the year, we'll send you a hat, a t-shirt and a mug, some swag. So can't go wrong there. Um, now's the time. Don't miss this window. And thank you for your support. I am so excited for the new year. Um, Oh, one more thought. (laughs) Until I get the RV, I need crash pads. If you're willing to host me, I will come to your city. I will do my my thing in your city if I have a bed to to crash on. Or even better, if you um, have an Airbnb property that you're willing to give me a deal on, uh, that would be awesome. Help me kind of keep my expenses down while I try to figure out how to do this thing the way that I want to do it. Um, all right, that's it for today. I can't say goodbye without saying thank you to Jared Parisi for your copyright and editing editing. Thank you to Callan Miola for your work as our community manager. And thank you, Anna Tazin with the good kind consulting for your executive support and counsel. Now I'll say goodbye until next time. Peace out. <laughs>